Well, ahoy there, land loving podcast listeners, and welcome to a brand new episode of your absolute favorite horror movie review and general bullshittery podcast in this world and the next. Why, it's Dad and Lovely here with your best buds in all the world. It's me, your quarantine pal, Uncle Ben. Yeah, it's me, Salty Steve. <laughs> oh, Salty Steve. <laughs> Avast! Yeah. <laughs> Salty like it, Steve has no nation nor city. <laughs> you know, Steve, I know that everybody, of course, is obviously sick of hearing the obvious and hearing people talk about how Hey, have you noticed how we're all quarantined right now? Yeah. Yeah. I know they yeah, are. I, I don't have want, noticed that. I don't want to go on at length about it, but one thing that I just do want to say at the front of this episode is that everybody that is working in the medical community right now is a fucking hero. I think that we have a lot of listeners I know that work in the medical field, and they are showing balls of brass beyond anything I will ever put up in the public eye, man. They are... I think to be revered like fucking 9-11 first responders, because this isn't just a day. This is months on end that they are showing true grit in the face of mm. mortal peril. So I just want to take a second here and just say thank you so much to everyone in our medical community for doing what a lot of us absolutely could never do. I would be much too terrified to ever do something like this. So you guys are above and beyond showing and here, your worth. He, here's the thing you have to do. Calling, calling people heroes can mean a lot. But it can also do another thing, which is make people think they've done enough. Mm. If you say everyone's a hero and you think you've done enough, no. If they're heroes, you need to insist they get paid. You need to vote for people who will keep them out of danger. Because the current administration is keeping them very much in danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much. So they're heroes, but also we need to fight for them. And it's not just it's not just a you know a simple like they need they need more supplies. They also need to be getting paid more. Oh yeah, because yeah. this is taking a toll for sure. It's it's definitely taking a toll on them. So like really, they're heroes. Also fight. Figure out what you can do for them, especially if you're just home. I mean, if you're home and you're doing nothing. Figure out how you can help some of these medical professionals because it's rough. It's real tough for them. So just, you know, bolster them however you can. Yeah, no doubt, man. And hopefully we can we can bolster them with a chuckle and a horror movie review and all that jazz. So that's what Hell we're yeah. here to do. This is our way of helping fight the good fight. The good fight. <laughs> Isn't that on? That's on CBS. <laughs> this episode brought to you by the good fight. I don't know why we talk in this voice. Yeah, but you do, obviously. Yeah. How you been doing this week, Steve? You going stir crazy or anything? You just living the dream? Uh, no, I am not going stir crazy, but I'm go- I am going a little crazy because there, there's like, <laughs> there's like, uh, the fact that I I normally don't do a ton anyway is making it so that like this is fine, but I'm also realizing how unfine it is. Mm. Like that this is how I normally live. <laughs> like there's like, it's oh, not it isn't, isn't normal, good. right? Yeah, this drives people yeah. crazy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like just seeing everybody else having such a tough time with it, I'm like, oh right, like that. I might need to get out more once this is over. <laughs> like, dude, I'm I telling you what, though, to- man. I was thinking about this the other day, and I was like, dude, imagine that all of this was going on, 
in like the early 90s or 80s or something like that like pre-internet oh. pre-streaming like where you'd, you'd have millions of people no. locked into their homes with like three channels of network network oh, television that went God. off at 11 could you but imagine I, I the mass hysteria i remember because i was a night owl even as a kid i yeah. remember summers it, like i remember when television used to go off yeah like totally. it would National show the Anthem. flag and then stop yeah like poltergeist yeah <laughs> Yes. And yeah, it was hard to, I mean, what do you do? What would you, I just can't even imagine that, Ben. I cannot imagine what it would have been like if this had happened in the 80s. I know, right? Oh. It's crazy. So could be worse. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. That's a great point. It could be worse. Yeah, dude. Now I've been having actually a really fucking busy week, man. I've been, I've been busier than a old three legged dog trying to bury a bone on a frozen pond. <laughs> <laughs> busier than a two peckered goat in mating season. That's right, man. That busy, mm -hmm. dude. A lot of people, you know, people are stuck at home. They're watching guitar videos. They're wanting to improve their guitar playing, get some sky lessons yeah. and stuff. And I'm, I'm happy to lay it on a man. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's been great just to you know see some unfamiliar and familiar faces and give some people something to do during these trying times. So yeah. I, I'm very grateful to be extremely fucking busy. But yeah, it's it's been good, man. The time has been whizzing by, and I have had time to watch a couple things while I'm winding down after a night of teaching those sixteenth note shred licks. You want to hear about it? Yeah, tell me about it. What you been watching? I'm gonna start off with one that we've talked about many times on the show, but I just now watched. It's a little pellicula that just came out called Knives Out. Knives Out. Knives Out. It's got a lot of folks in it. You got Laurie Strode in there. You got James Bond. Uh -huh. You got uh -huh. that, that mom from Hereditary. That's right. All <laughs> Playing kinds a little of different character. Slightly different. Slightly, <laughs> Slightly different, different, man. It was a really yeah. enjoyable flick. Like I had heard yeah. so much hype from people just saying like it's one of the best movies of the year and... Uh, I went into it with pretty high hopes, and I got to say, it, it mostly lived up to him. I don't know if it was like quite the 10 out of 10 that people sold me, yeah. but I still really, really enjoyed it, man. I don't know that it's a 10 out of 10 either, but I loved it. Like, yeah. I, I, think, I think people loved it so much because it came out near the end of the year, and it had, you know how 2019, like right now, we're, we probably think, back fondly on 2019 but it kind of <laughs> yeah, sucked as a year it did <laughs> and, and knives out came along and it was just fun and i think people were just like yes okay great and it was like fun for people who can't entirely shut their brains off as well as fun for people who can yeah totally so, man I think it was just one of those movies where it was like, oh, finally, yes, we can just relax for a second. Yeah, and enjoy a fun story, right? Yeah. That also has some substance to it. Like, I like that it oh, does yeah. have the whole, like, clue-like murder mystery whodunit uh -huh. kind of angle, but at the same time... In a way different perspective. In a way different yeah. way, yeah, because it kind of yeah. tells you about uh, two-thirds of the way through the movie, or maybe a third of the way through the movie, what happened. Yeah, a third of the way. Yeah, a third of the way through the movie, you know exactly what happened, but you don't know all of it yeah but, totally it's a different yeah, mystery it, to unravel after that yeah and it it does have the obviously political messages i mean there's the uh little nazi kid masturbating in the bathroom and yeah <laughs> all that sort of stuff like it it's got political messages but it also is just a fun mystery to try to figure out and captain america's in it so yeah that's exactly fun. playing a very different kind of role than i'm used to seeing yeah. him you know yeah, he's getting more back to his uh, not another teen movie roots. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one was, uh, it was a blast. And I got to say, like, overall, my complaints are pretty minor. Like, there's stuff yeah. in there where I feel like it probably could have been trimmed down. It also probably it could have It was trimmed down. Was it really? I mean, uh, yeah, there were there were so many moments watching it through, because uh, I just rewatched it, too, with Emily after uh, the Friday night streaming chat. And there were so many moments I saw where it was like, why did where, where did we how do we get to here like the mm. the story is consistent but like there are moments where it's like you see daniel craig has his tie stuffed in his shirt which is normally right. something someone does when they're going to be very active but he's not and That's then he I just pulls it out fight somebody or something yeah yeah and emily pointed out like at one point like chris evans is you know it's at the end where they're explaining everything that happened and chris evans is standing up then it cuts away from him for a second cuts back and he's sitting down oh and it's like hmm. it's like i mean i know that seems minor but because so much attention was paid in the movie i'm pretty sure that there was a num there were a number of things in that final sort of explanation sequence yeah. that were cut for time or cut because they cut that bit of the story throughout or whatever yeah, because obviously in that kind of story, they're paying a lot of close attention to continuity yeah. and stuff. So it feels like that's less of a continuity yeah. error and more of a, oh, they cut something. Yeah, and I mean, but two things. Was I correct? Daniel Craig's southern accent is awesome. It's awesome. I mean, I already knew that from it's Logan so Lucky because his, his yeah. accent in Logan Lucky is fucking perfect. But it's yes. so, so good in this, too. Yeah. And then two, how cute is the main character? 20 out of 10. She's adorable. adorable. Love her. Yeah. Yeah. Really fun flick, man. I did have a good time watching it. I'm sure that I'll watch it again. Um, yeah. We also, the past, like, maybe week or two, and, you know, we've been doing this for a little while here, but I wanted to wait till I at least finished a season of it before I talked about it on the show. Uh, we've started watching through something that Kate watched while it was on the air, but is mm -hmm. completely new to me. I had never watched the fucking Sopranos before, and we just finished the first hey, season the other day. Oh, oh Papa the Boopy! Forget about it, dude. It's fucking great. I yeah, get it. I, well, I totally. Get I that. also watched it while it was on, but then fell off. So I haven't seen the last season. Oh, okay. Uh, and then I know that people hate the final episode. And it's kind of one of those things where it's one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And if it's going to end in disappointment, I almost don't want to finish it. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's so, the thing. Like, I whenever that final episode aired, I just happened to, like, walk into somebody's house and they were watching uh -huh. it. And I, again, I'd never seen The Sopranos before, so I didn't know what was going yeah. on. But I did watch the very last scene. Of the very last okay. episode. So I mean, I, I know, know what happens. Yeah, yeah. 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 And to me, I'm like... I'm kind of cool with it. To me, the fun part is finding out, well, how did it get to this point, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I think I I maybe avoided some disappointment that, like, if I do sit and watch it now, it, it really will just be like, oh, that makes sense. Because, yeah. like, there's not the anticipation building up over, like, all these seasons, like, and I already know what happens, like, mm -hmm. to just see how it finally gets to that bit in the last season. I'm probably worth it yeah man um, maybe i'll finish it i was really worried it would be very dated because obviously you're talking about the first real big serialized mm -hmm. drama show to come out on hbo that really made hbo into the tv machine that that it became later on with shows like game of thrones and shit like that right um because you know you got to think 
this had no prior model, save for maybe soap right. operas. Like soap operas are probably the closest thing you could think of of a serialized story, but not really taken to the level of storytelling and character development that some of those later shows would do, obviously. So I was really worried that it was going to feel super dated. Uh, and I guess, you know, the the clothes, the fashion and music and stuff like that kind of do. But the storytelling and character development and stuff is so good that it's kind of crazy. It's one of those things where it's just like, did a time traveler make this? Because it's such a well-developed <laughs> premise for a show, you know? Maybe a time traveler did make it. it <laughs> that would explain that, right? it. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I loved it. We're fixing to start the second season, and I'm already like really excited to get into that. So I've been jamming on that. And also, I'll tell you what, man. If you want yourself a feel-good flick in these trying times, I'm going to lay one on you. What you got? We watched this last night. It was one that Kate had heard of, and I didn't know anything about. Uh, I watched this before I watched The Lighthouse again for the podcast, which was kind of a weird <laughs> cycle of <laughs> moods, I guess. Uh, but it's a movie called Troop Zero. Have you heard of this movie? No. Okay. So it's got Jim Gaffigan in it. It's got okay. Viola Davis. Okay. And uh, a lot of incredible kid actors, including the girl that played like young Tanya Harding and young Carol Danvers uh, okay. in those movies. Okay. She's the main character in it. Uh, it is essentially, honestly, it's basically Little Miss Sunshine, but set in late 70s. Georgia, small town south, you know, southern Georgia, and it's about kind of like a Girl Scout troop kind of thing and a, co- okay. a competition. All so right. it has that same like feel good, you know, underdog band of miscreants kind of feel that Little Miss Sunshine does, but in a very different kind of way. It's so perfectly southern, like you know how it is, man. When you grow up mm-hmm. in the South and you watch a movie that's set in the South, but it's not really. Right, really, how it is here? You just right. you're just kind of like, oh man, this sucks. This isn't what it's really like around here, you know? Yeah. But whenever you watch a movie that actually does feel like what the South feels like, it's so great. And this really totally has that feel, man. Whoever made this movie really must have grown up somewhere around here because it's so fantastic. Really, really good. Troop movie, Zero, you said. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, Troop Zero. Okay. Let's check that. I had out. a really good time watching that, one, man. So highly, highly recommend. Especially if you just want something that's kind of a feel good simple flick man sweet what have you been watching on man did you guys do a little streaming chat last we week? we did on on friday night we watched slumber party massacre 2 Ooh, i threw a little music on know, that's yeah. pretty good it's a musical movie it's a musical movie and it has a guy with a, a completely insane guitar that makes no sense uh <laughs> i love it already are you kidding yeah it's it's i mean it, it's bad but it's yeah. it's like ridiculous, absurd, bad, and fun because of that. <laughs> so the first one we reviewed on the show a really long time ago, and yeah. I think we went on at length about a lot of the uh, very intentional misogynistic ov- overtones and sexualization yeah. stuff in that movie and how yeah. it was really played up for the viewer by yeah. a feminist writer that put that movie together. Does this movie have any of that, or is it just like fucking well, it, fun? It's written and directed by a woman, uh, but... No, it it completely <laughs> abandons any of that. Basically, I mean, it the band in there's a band in it, and they're all girls. So I guess that's a girl power sort of thing in 1988. I think is when it came out. Okay. But it it's uh, yeah it it uh, it really abandons a lot of what happens in the first, and I think they were going for a sort of knockoff of 
Nightmare on Elm Street. Because, okay. like, he, he kind of is in her dreams and stuff. And I would say even the, the guitar itself kind of looks like it was a rip-off a bit of Freddy Krueger. Like, it, I, I don't know why they abandoned what they had before, but it it's fun, at least. It's stupid. Okay. It's like stringing together a number of bad music videos, but... <laughs> I like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> That was probably perfect to do, though, for just, you know, uh, a Friday stream and chat where everybody's just kind of chit-chatting and not really watching the movie. Yeah, I, I think we found the perfect movies for Friday nights are uh, 70 to 80 minutes long, and this one was 71. Perfection. <laughs> Perfection. Just barely a movie. Just barely a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Diet, man. You guys having some drinks while you're doing that or what? Yeah, yeah, there was some drinking going on. It would I've noticed actually a few other podcasts are doing these streaming chats and, and drinking now, and I'm I'm glad nice. that people have something to do. This is fun. Yeah, dude. Man, you know, one thing that really struck me this week too is like we've got several friends who are, you know, during lockdown and stuff like this, pregnant. So they can't Ugh. get fucked up at all. Can you imagine how terrible Fuck. that would be? <laughs> Just Ugh. just raw dog in the pandemic. Oof. It's got to be awful. It's got to be awful, man. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been finding myself doing a bit of drinking while we've been in the old quarantine here, man. Thank God I live so close to a liquor store and can stay stocked up at all times. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got a few liquor stores around us, too, that uh, definitely have seen some patronage. I... I, I've drank a little bit more in the past week than I had been, and I, I don't regret it, but it's it's no fun, honestly. After a, a while, woman on the lips, forever on the hips, Steve. Yeah, well, there's that, and and it does affect working out the next day. And I really mm. love my workouts, but like I, I don't know, it's just like uh, taking a depressant during a depressing time. <laughs> Is, well, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound very yeah. fun. I mean, like right now, it's all like we're just coping and stuff, and I get that. But like yeah. a after a while, it becomes just you know you get drunk and uh, you're not avoiding anything. You're only thinking about that thing because you have this depressant running through your system, reminding you of all the shitty things. Hey, so, we're not talking about the lighthouse yet, man. Knock it off. <laughs> Knock it off. Save it for later. <laughs> Save it for out there, man. Save it for the field. <laughs> So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, be sure to take, take days where you don't drink. Don't drink every day. It's, it's going to catch up to you. So Steve, it's kind of funny. You were mentioning before we started recording the podcast, something that you watched that another friend of mine, my, my main man, Junkyard Joe just told me about, which is those, uh, those documentaries about Razzlin on Vice. Yeah. You were watching the same thing, weren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I watched the, uh, Dark Side of the Ring. It's Vice's documentary series about wrestling they're in season two and it started with the chris benoit story wow and so a good feel good pick me up for these dark times yeah and <laughs> it's so like because full honesty I, and i've been fully honest about this in the past chris benoit was one of the best wrestlers of all time and was one of my favorites yeah uh, he and Eddie Guerrero, I think, were not only amazing together, but they were able to uh, transition from WCW to WWF in a way that other wrestlers were not able to. 
and yeah. that's because they were so talented in the ring that they could not be like put down in any way by the management so they they went out there and they they fucking won championships and they were badasses and it was awesome and then eddie died and eddie was chris's best friend and chris was suffering from cte and then spiraled into depression what is and cte chron chronic traumatic encephalopathy it's uh, what football players oh, lots and, of head injuries and stuff yeah, yeah yeah his his brain was riddled with all sorts of badness because he is it did just me or did it take us way too long to make a diagnosis for that as an actual problem is that not fucking crazy yeah it used to be just like punch drunk was what they would call it like yeah yeah like he he's taking too many punches to the head it just makes you wacky and silly or whatever uh but no it, it makes you not be able to control your emotions and and you know eventually do things that you would never have done like well, yeah dude i mean your brain is your just family. A, a soft sponge being you know knocked around inside of your brain pan there yeah. dude that's not going to lead to anything good yeah i mean in, in the doc in the documentary show series they they go into that and it it's it's great like they they're really in depth and show why like the wwe had to change like how, why yeah. they had to like eliminate chair shots to the head and all these other things i mean oh really yeah they like it's it's a much more sanitized uh thing now but uh, people like i think it does a good job though like if you're the type of person who says like you know you listen to our podcast and you hear us talk about wrestling and you're like oh my god i don't even fucking care like seriously give this a viewing uh, I think it'll give you an appreciation for one, why uh, fans of wrestling get upset when people say wrestling's fake, because what you're diminishing is what's happening. Like the amazing athletic prowess and uh, storytelling and things that are going on, and the fact that they are getting hurt, like oh, yeah. in reality. Like people think that they're using some sort of chairs that are made out of like, uh you know aluminum like a like a can or something that easily bends they're using no. real fucking chairs yeah and exactly. those chairs That's going to do hurt. damage yeah. yeah even if you know it's coming and it's planned out yeah. it doesn't mean that it doesn't yeah. fucking pack a wall up yeah when chris Sabu jericho, throws it at your face <laughs> right chris jericho talks about it he talks about like how you take a chair shot and it really is just gritting your teeth and getting hit in the head by a chair <laughs> like jesus it's it's not some fancy thing they like just know how, exactly how to get hit no you get hit and it rattles your brain and that's what happens so Take a bump yeah so I, I i i appreciated that i appreciated that they they went in depth on on these things and i also appreciate that wwe knows that those things are super entertaining but you can't do them anymore once you know what it's doing to people's brains like you you really got to be very judicious about big bumps and chair shots and stuff like that right yeah yeah well it's so, good that they're taking a responsible angle at it and showing you it's like yeah. this is the damage this can do to people yeah. you know because i think a lot of people like you said totally overlook that because yeah it's, quote fake you know yeah yeah i mean it's it's staged it's uh it's a work it's not it's not real but it they're real people involved and real physical violence occurring wow well it sounds yeah. like that's a good watch man 
It's depressing. It's depressing as hell. I'm not gonna tell you that you're gonna watch it and not cry most of the time. It's a depressing hour and a half, but it's it's amazing. It's really well done. Well, maybe you watch that, then you watch Troop Zero for a little bit. There you up. go. <laughs> That's the way to go. And then you just go completely batshit bonkers and watch the subject of today's podcast, which is, of course, The Lighthouse from last year, 20 and 19. And this is a buckwild, rip-roaring, <laughs> crazy fucking movie, Steve. Yeah, it is. And I think just even thinking about how wild it gets makes me just a little bit parched. I think me I need too. something to, to whet my whistle, dude. My well, whistle It's a, it, it's a good thing. We had a non-personal beer drop where I dropped yeah. you half of these beers that our fans and stuff have sent us. You picked them up off the doorstep there. Yeah. That way we can long distance get a pull. Get us a pull. This what is called an eye. It's an eye pull, I think is what it's called whenever it's long distance <laughs> over the internet. Yeah. Eye pull. So this right here is one that was sent to us by our good buddy, Jeff Rupert from upstate New York. This is a K2 Bros Brewing. He sent us many of their beers, and they've all been so remarkably unique and fantastic. This is their second anniversary edition, barrel-aged Imperial Mole Stout. Mole, mole, mole. Mole, mole. Now, when I opened this up just now, Ben, not only did a waft of all sorts of flavors and smells and whatnot come at me but the can also uh ejaculated so oh no look out <laughs> I, got, <laughs> I got i got a good bit of it on my desk but i've wiped it up now so we're good <laughs> lick it up <laughs> <laughs> now this promises that this is a barrel aged imperial oatmeal stout that was brewed with chocolate, nutmeg, cinnamon, and habanero peppers. Holy moly! Jesus. Yeah, this I'm is a 12-percenter, too. So this is a big old beer. I'm glad this is a one-and-done affair. Oh, shit, yeah, it's, it's foaming up like a damn banshee for me, too, Steve. I also got some of that on my desk. I'm going to need a medic. Medic! <laughs> medic! Clean up! <laughs> Thank you, my lovely assistant, my, my wife. Oh, good. I brought me... I thought it might be that no good fuzzbead. Ah, oh, fuzzbead, dude. You know fuzzbead's locked up. He's being lazy as shit, too. He's not doing a thing. Dude, this Thank smells... Thank you, darling. It smells... Oh, it smells like good. so you much smell of the cinnamon. Stuff. Yeah. You smell the cinnamon? Uh-huh. You can smell that it's gonna be a little bit hot. Yeah, Ooh. you can smell a little bit of that, that floral yeah. note from the habanero, right? Yeah. Ooh, All man. Right. I look forward I'm to getting into this. this it, out. It does seem very effervescent, hence the fact that it just kind of jazzed all over both of our, our desks yeah. here. Seems nice and foamy. That'll probably lighten it up a little bit, too, since it is a, a 12 percenter. Uh, this is a non-see-throughable beer. It is, yeah, no, uh, that, it's not it just is like motor black. Oil. No, yeah, but, it's like a very dark brown, like chocolate syrup. Yeah, color. like you don't need to change your oil just yet, but you're getting there. Whoa! That yeah, is so good. Yeah, and the spice does hit. I'm feeling it on my lips for sure. Yeah, dude. It's like after you kind of swallow it, you kind of feel it. A little back of the throat Ooh. burn, man. But dude, Ooh. the cinnamon and the chocolate and That's the nutmeg. So nice. Yeah. It tastes like a great mole sauce or like a nice Mexican chocolate yeah, yeah. cake or something like mm -hmm. that. Kind of tastes like a Mexican mocha. You ever have a good Mexican mocha? I have not. Dude, it's a thing of glory, and you can get them iced, too. That's what I usually this, do over at Coffee and Chocolate in Knoxville, Tennessee. This reminds me of another mole stout that we had. Oh, damn it. Who was it this from? This is it better, was a Tennessee though. Brewer. This one, I think, is better. 
I remember that one having a lot of burn to it. And this oh, one you're talking about the one that we did in the beer video on the YouTube yeah, yeah. channel, right? Yeah, yeah, that was was that tailgate did that? I think so. Yeah, tailgate. Uh, it was yeah, uh, that, that thing was that shockingly hot. A lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> this isn't one... just like a total heat fest. This is a flavor bomb right here. Yeah, and you can Dude. smell. You can just smell so much off of it. What a great beer. Yeah, and the aftertaste is fantastic too. The aftertaste has a nice like raisiny kind of like like a cinnamon raisin bread kind of aftertaste, or like yeah. a cinnamon raisin bagel aftertaste. Yeah, cinnamon, but also raisin. spicy. <laughs> but yeah, that I mean, I'm taking it very slow because each sip is all habanero. Like <laughs> you're getting that heat. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna savor this one right here just because every little sip has so much fucking flavor. Damn, that is awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff, for sending us. Yeah, thanks, this Jeff. Delectable brew. All right, Steve. The subject of our show today once again is the lighthouse, which is a great story about two seafaring men. Just bonding and sharing good times while they're together on on a lighthouse there. But this movie is riddled with subtext of myth and lore and history and all kinds of good stuff. So as we were talking about the planning stages uh, of this episode, man, we really had a hard time narrowing down what we're going to do for the preview palace segment before we do the movie review. We always like to kind of, you know, pluck something from the movie, a little theme or maybe a character or something in there and tug at that thread a little bit with a fun list mm -hmm. or quiz but we were frankly just so overwhelmed with choices for what to do for this movie that yeah. we came up with something a little bit different steve so let's go ahead and slip on in to the preview palace welcome to the preview palace Ooh, sea shanty edition mm -hmm. and let's talk about the best topics that we could have done for a preview palace about the lighthouse <laughs> <laughs> i like this i like this meta kind of meta yeah <laughs> All right, Steve, let's start off with one of the obvious things that we could have gone for here. When you start thinking about all these seafaring men, these hardened, grisly guys living on the salt and the land and the rocks, you obviously start thinking, best sea shanties, am I right? Yeah, for sure. I mean... Oh, man. I consulted my volume of, now that's what I call sea shanties for some inspiration here. <laughs> ben, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, when you sent me that... Anytime I uh, think of sea shanties now, all I think of is Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag because oh. when you're out uh, on your ship, your crew will sing sea shanties and you can like, they're also hidden sea shanties you can find and unlock. Uh, but like, it's just awesome <laughs> to be sailing out there. Maybe, maybe you're going to whaling and your crew's just singing a sea shanty. Oh man, times are good. Times are good. <laughs> I think my favorite one, just for reference, yeah, I'm a big blow the man down kind of guy. Oh, yeah. I love, I yeah, love yeah. the piratey feel. I love the homoerotic tinges ho, that it has. Blow the man, yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't get you riled up, I don't think nothing will. <laughs> That's true. If if <laughs> blowing the man doesn't get you riled up, now, not ben, much is gonna do it. I mean, this this movie has it, so it made me think of it. What are the best farts in horror movies? <laughs> oh man, that's a tough one right there. That is definitely a tough one. Because I, I mean, start this thinking one, about that, and I'm sure. like, it's got to have some some horror comedies. Definitely got to have some good fart land. Oh, in for them. sure. Yeah, I mean, I know that the uh, what are the scream knockoffs? <laughs> what are those? Fuck. Oh, like uh, scary movie. Scary movie. Yeah, scary movie definitely has a ton of fart jokes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, fe- yeah. This I, is a topic we could have explored at length for sure. I feel like there were farts somewhere along in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and in the Friday the Thirteenth movies. That seems likely. Yeah, <laughs> that seems like something that maybe would have happened in in the third one, maybe with Shelley or somebody, right? Right. But I, I mean, no fart will ever equal just the first fart in this movie, which is the first, <laughs> I guess, communication between these two. Dude, that's what I was going to say. Like, there's yeah. farts before there's fucking dialogue yeah. in this movie. Uh-huh. But the <laughs> fart tells you something. It does. It does. It really yeah. sets up just how that character dynamic is going to work. Yep. I also noticed the second time around watching this that, like, whenever Robert Pattinson walks into that that you know, bedroom that they're sharing, uh-huh. uh, Willem Dafoe is standing behind that post, hidden from the camera, pissing into a pot. Yep. <laughs> you see that his pee stream is going to the right. So that means that Robert Pattinson is positioned behind him. So that first fart, he basically is just farting in his face. Yeah. Because he's sitting down. He's like at ass level. The movie starts with him getting his face farted upon. And and this, I just find it so funny because it reminds me of my uncle. Like I, I remember so many times I would stay over with my cousins and we'd just sleep on the floor after watching horror movies. And uh, he'd wake up on the couch and uh, he'd be going to the bathroom and he would fart and he would say there's a kiss for you and then <laughs> go pee <laughs> and what do you I, think the first like grown ass man that figured out that kids love farting yeah that figured that out do you think he like he came back home and he's like honey the weirdest thing happened I farted in front of the kids and they loved it <laughs> who figured this I, out first I'm imagining it's the 1950s cause that's like the only way I can see that playing out oh I it's think a caveman guy who- dude I think it goes way back <laughs> Well, yeah, definitely it happened way back, but I'm just imagining a dude dressed almost like uh, Fred Rogers with a pipe, and he's like, honey, the strangest thing. (laughs) (laughs) I accidentally tooted the other day, and the children found it a delight. Hey, they were delighted. (laughs) Farts are always funny. That's They are. True. Always funny. All right, Steve, let me ask you. A topic that this movie explores that I think we could have got into, best alcohol alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Turpentine so and honey, number one. <laughs> mm, goes down so smooth, yeah. man. We saw some other uh, other things explored in, like, The Master. The Master, yeah. He, um, he distills the methanol out of uh, the torpedo juice, which is uh, a... I look. I looked that up because I was reading about the turpentine thing. I looked that up, and they they talked to a guy, a moonshiner, about the different scenes in the master and the stuff he's doing. And a lot of them, the moonshiner was like, "Oh yeah, you can you can get alcohol doing that." <laughs> so like, holy cow, man! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way, right? Yep. <laughs> you know, another one that I think that would have been a great intro for this episode: weirdest whack off scene. <laughs> Most of them are weird, unless it's like, yeah. uh, like unless the name of it is "dude jerks off." Then it's usually like, "Oh, there's a dude oh, jerking prepared off." For that. Unprepared, yeah. But you know what? Whenever I start thinking about, especially in the genre of horror, weirdest whack off scenes, uh, actually both of them are female based in my mind. Oh yeah, yeah. First one that I thought about was that scene in Black Swan. Where oh, I think like yeah. Natalie Portman is kind of like she's kind of DJing a little bit. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. she like I think her mom is in the room or something weird or like there's a picture of her mom. I just remember mm-hmm. her like 
diddling and looking at her mom, and it yeah. was really weird. Real weird. <laughs> yeah, Black Swan's one we have to do. That's a strange movie. <laughs> yeah. And also, too, if you think back to when we did our high tension episode. Oh, yeah. She's That's listening right. to that like hard, that hard terrible, reggae rap. Terrible, terrible re- reggae rap. Yeah, <laughs> and having herself a little, uh, a little moment of alone time. There. Yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about that. Well, <laughs> there's, there's probably more we could explore. I think. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I, it doesn't. I think is it Friday the Thirteenth Part Four where the there's the guy who keeps calling Crispin Glover a dead fuck. I'm pretty sure he jerks off at some point. That sounds right. Yeah. Sounds like something he'd do. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Steve, what do you think it would have been like if we would have chosen the topic best mermaids? <laughs> I mean, the real problem with that is other than, uh, 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 fuck, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, other than the, obviously the, the woods, best mermaid. There's never really been a good representation of mermaids in horror movies. Like, I, I want a good mermaid horror movie. Yeah, it's true. Because there is a lot that you could play around with there. The, yeah. The forbidden sexuality, the, yeah. the the isolated nature of men at sea and I so mean, forth. I think this one is, is the best representation of a, a mermaid in a horror movie, but she's yeah. just barely a part of it. Uh, I, I mean, if we're saying best mermaids, though, like, who do we go with? Because, like, I, I do love The Little Mermaid, but... That story is What about gross. Splash? Oh, there you go. That's <laughs> less gross by far. <laughs> and of course, probably the most uh, the most easily observable topic and the thing that Kate and I both felt after we watched this movie the other night. Worst movies to watch during a quarantine. <laughs> like <laughs> this one. Locked yeah. in a room with another person for weeks this. on end. The Shining. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Quarantine. I mean, yeah. na- name yeah. any of them. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the funny thing to me, though, dude, is like, whenever all this shit going, uh, started going down, yeah. you and I, of course, had the discussion after many fans suggested it. It's like, oh, with this stuff going on, you guys should do quarantine. You guys should do outbreak, right. whatever. And right. we were like, low-hanging fruit. We're not going to yeah. play into that. You know, it's not like, doing that's that. That's too obvious. We're not going to do a quarantine movie. Then we did a quarantine movie. Then we did a quarantine movie <laughs> that we didn't know was a quarantine movie. Yeah, yeah we kind of walked into it by accident, frankly. That was not at all the design yeah. of like, hey, it we should do a movie about people going crazy while they're locked in a room with each other for weeks nope. on end. Well, I didn't know intent. what The Lighthouse was about, but now no. that I know, sorry, guys. <laughs> didn't want to remind you. Uh, yeah, we just kind of walked full on into that pothole yeah, right there, didn't true. we? But it, I mean, it, it, uh, it. I think it's a good time because it's early... You know, what are we in week uh, two officially? I think we've been quarantined now for uh, four episodes. Yeah, I think it's been about a month for us. Yeah, where we we took it seriously, but most people didn't really take it seriously until maybe the last couple weeks. So no, huh? week two of it. Maybe is now is the time to be thinking specifically about it because it, it's happening, and and you need to think like, okay, I shouldn't be mad at everything my husband or wife or child does like it's just because we're stir crazy let's not start drinking turpentine (laughs) (laughs) so there you go guys some of the ideas that we could have explored for the intro of this movie (laughs) none of which we actually explored that was the best that's the best preview palace we've ever done because it probably is (laughs) it makes no sense (laughs) all killer no filler man things we could have talked about (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Steve. So this is a movie that came out last year, and of course, this was on every horror top, yeah. you know, top movies yeah. of the year list ever. But this is one that we both were just way too fucking busy last year to actually yeah, get I out. I just didn't and have see, the time. 2019 was so fucking crazy busy yes, for me, man. Yeah. And so I never got to watch this one, man. So whenever we decided to do this for the show, I was so excited. But it was also the kind of thing that we had to choose when we could do it because. You knew going into it with this being a Robert Eggers movie, there was going to be a lot of fucking research to do. Yeah, and there was, and and yeah, I had to had to be able to put that much time into it because it deserves it. Because uh, he put that much time into it, like a lot of, of the course. times where I put a whole lot of effort into research, it's really possible the writer or director or it, uh, no one involved even considered any of these things. But in this case, I truly believe Robert Eggers. Uh, research interest goes exactly in line with a lot of the stuff I'll be talking about and I wish sure. I knew everything else he researched. Yeah, cuz that's the thing. It's like this is only dude's second movie. His yeah. his first one of course being The Witch, which is yep. one of our absolute favorites. Check out our episode on that. It's an early episode, but we do some really good deep diving yeah. into the history and lore that's mm -hmm. hidden in because that movie. He did like we, we yeah. know for sure he did the research so right yeah so yeah. going into it with the level of research that we did for that movie and all the symbolism and hidden things that we saw in there going into this movie i kind of knew everything would be deliberate it's kind of like mm -hmm. watching a, a kubrick movie in a way yep. where you're like yep. that's that way for a reason that person yeah. is wearing that color tie to mm -hmm. say something you he know? thought about it he wanted it that particular way and there's a reason in his head so, he wants it that, that way. way. <laughs> Tell so me going why. Into this, yeah, like <laughs> I was watching it with a really critical eye, just knowing, okay, everything here is a deliberate choice, you know? Yeah. And it, it didn't disappoint. I mean, as much as I love The Witch, I went right. into this with very, very, very high hopes. Yeah. And I still, you know, when the credits started rolling, I was like, that was fucking awesome absolutely yeah. one of the best of 2019 without a doubt not bearing yeah. the lead here fucking loved it yeah i absolutely love it uh, but i i see that it is maybe a bit m less clear than the witch i think it was it was easier for me to pull out of the witch uh some meaning some some very I think essential themes and stuff than it was here, mm -hmm. but that is not to say that that has anything to do with it being less researched or less well written. I, no, I just, no, no, no. I think basically what I'll be getting at is that the witch was a, a great like female empowerment tale written by a man. Uh, who did his best to understand the struggle, but he was an outside observer, so he was able to put black and white to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. this is about masculinity, and specifically toxic masculinity. And I think because he's a man, it's harder to give an objective view of it, and so you end up reveling in a lot of the things that you're trying to work out so mm, like yeah it, it seems less clear throughout and a lot more ambiguous and a lot a lot harder to say exactly what he's getting at because i think he's experienced it so he's like it's ha he's having trouble being as clear as he was with the witch 
Well, and I think, too, another angle that makes this maybe a little bit more indecipherable than what we saw in The Witch is the fact that both of these movies, uh, in The Witch more at the forefront and this more in the subtext, are dealing with religion and religious figures. Right. Uh, of course, the witch being primarily based in Christianity, which is things that yeah, you know, which is something that we both have experience in, obviously. Right. Uh, this movie being really steeped very much in Greek and Roman mythology, which right. of course we call it mythology, but come on, guys, it used to be religion. Yeah, it was this religion. Used to be just right. as real as Christianity is to a lot of people now. So with this movie, it's basically dealing with a religion that has been dead for eons. So I think it's less relatable for us in a lot of ways because we've never practice that religion right. so to speak you know and there's all there's also like the concept of the religion of the sea like sailors had their own uh you know beliefs and things and uh, attributions to various gods because they were often from different nations with different cultures and different mythologies and things like so sailors would have so many different things running through their head alongside the bible like all these various mythologies and and you know also just superstitions and just whatever yeah, ghost folk. stories yeah folk stuff beliefs, they picked ghost up stories. off on on islands and yeah shit like this yeah so that mishmash has to exist when you're talking about these guys in a lighthouse in 1890 you're gonna be talking about people who, you know, one of them says he's a former sea captain. We don't know if that's true, uh, but he says he is. Uh, yeah. And he seems to have a ton of experience and uh, talks lot, the, talks the talk. And then we have another guy who's just sort of being introduced into this world. This is his first time taking care of a lighthouse. He used to work, you know, cutting logs and stuff. So, like, he's being introduced into this whole different culture mythology religion whatever and he's also being introduced to it all by a guy who we're not sure we can trust i'm gonna say the learning curve is steep very steep yeah <laughs> it's an apprenticeship you don't really want to take on <laughs> no no it does not look fun at all um, no, man. No. And of course, you know, with the same amount of research that Robert Eggers did when he was making The Witch, where he sourced a lot of the dialogue and yeah. stuff from journal entries and stuff like this of early American settlers during the yeah. the witch hysteria and stuff like this that was going on, he did just as much research into yeah. this movie and painstakingly made it insanely accurate, even going down to the point of clearly doing a lot of research into what the average work day and the workflow of being right. a lighthouse tender at this time was, or a wiki as they called it. Yeah. And uh, I learned about a lot of this stuff through a podcast that that my wife, uh, Kate, recommended to me. And I listened to the first part of it. It was a two-parter, actually. Let me pull it up here so I can tell you what the name of it was, because it's a really cool show. The podcast is called Astonishing Legends, and I listened to their episode that was titled Mystery of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse Part 1. Which okay. is a cool kind of like, you know, lighthouse ghost story. There's some lighthouse tenders that disappeared. Nobody knew why. But the huh. really fascinating thing about that podcast is that they went into depth about that lighthouse tenders uh, guidebook that we see a couple times in the yeah. movie. And about like what the average lives of, you know, lighthouse workers were like and how they all had to strictly obey the head lighthouse commander guy, which is uh -huh. in this movie. 
uh, regardless of how crazy or whatever it is that he said. It's clear Ooh. that he really wrote this movie with those guidelines and stuff in oh, mind yeah. to make it as historically accurate as possible, as well as a lot of the, the dialogue and slang and stuff that these guys are using. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I didn't know about that. That um, Yeah, that he did... He did research like uh, more than just that. He also researched like journals of lighthouse mm. keepers and stuff to get some of their like manner, like ways of speaking. Yeah. So like uh, some of the lines come directly from lighthouse keepers from the times. That, that's really cool. I didn't, I didn't know about that though. Uh, wow. It's also inspired by an actual, like slightly inspired by an actual like real incident at Small's Lighthouse in oh. Wales. Oh, really? Yeah, there were these two lighthouse keepers, Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith in 1801. Oh, well, that's familiar naming. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So basically, Thomas Griffith, the older of the two, died in a freak accident. And Thomas Howell was afraid to bury him at sea because he thought that people would think he murdered him. Oh, okay. So... Instead, he built a makeshift uh, wooden box and, like, lashed him to the outside shelf. Now, you have to understand, this lighthouse was on, like, nine pillars. It's very different than the lighthouse we see here, where it was on a very tiny island that floods a lot. And so they're they're up on these pillars... uh, on this real small sort of actually rickety in ways because it got moved by the wind a lot. Somehow this lasted for 80 years, but uh, it got moved by the wind a lot and it was just a real small sort of shack. Uh, So like he lashes him to the outside of the shack and then wind starts blowing and just blows the box completely to to pieces. And apparently... uh, the arm of the corpse would just hit the window Jesus from the Christ. wind. And so, like, the guy started going crazy thinking that the guy was beckoning him to his death and stuff. It, It's an insane thing that actually ended up changing the lighthouse keeper laws in, uh, the, in Britain because they only had two light keepers lighthouse keepers up to that point so they they were like all right two's not enough you could easily go crazy things could go get out of hand one might murder the other one might be suspected of murdering the other we need three so (laughs) they started having three lighthouse keepers instead of just two i don't know that that entirely fixes all of those issues having one extra person in a small area probably doesn't make it much better but at least then you have a witness if one murders the other. Well, and at least also, too, you'd have a tiebreaker for arguments yeah. that arise or yeah. you know, choices that have to be made or whatever. You that know, is true. An odd number yeah. works better for that kind of thing. Wow, yeah. damn, man. Yeah, and he even went as far as to source out, like, film and stuff that hadn't been used in a damn hundred years or whatever to yeah. shoot this thing with and use yeah. period authentic lenses and all this crap, right? Yeah, Panavision hooked him up with a lot of uh, cool stuff. Uh, he was also inspired by a lot of literature from the 19th century, specifically sea literature like the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Samuel Taylor mm. Coleridge, which is uh, referenced throughout uh, the 
specifically in the rhyme of the ancient mariner the mariner kills an albatross and at first the crew believes that you know he's done something wrong because he's killed this albatross but then the wind changes and then they think everything's good and then it gets entirely worse and everybody but him dies so yeah, that's literally what happens in this he yeah, kills the seabird yeah. the wind changes it's gonna yeah. be pickup day and then everything goes to shit yeah so that's on the, the nose on the nose yeah then we also have uh melville's uh moby dick i mean other than melville's other he he wrote several travelogues that were about him uh on boats but moby dick is a completely fictional account and we get the cap captain ahab uh reference made in the movie by robert pattinson's character uh they're both named thomas so i'm just gonna refer to them as willem dafoe and robert pattinson yeah let's let's like, make that easier it'll, it'll get way too mixed up but uh the the references to moby dick actually made me go back to moby dick and reminded me that robert eggers is a, a modern day herman melville Hmm. Uh, the thing that, like, I've talked about Moby Dick before, and, and people really need to recognize why Moby Dick is considered a classic, and wasn't considered a classic when it came out. Uh, it's weird as hell. It starts with 18 pages of quotes about whales. <laughs> it's research. It's kind of a nutty that, way to start a book. Yeah, it's research. It's Melville's research. But, the like... He he was I get I think he was just showing like look where like all this stuff I found it's really cool, um, but this this movie I think is very much inspired by Moby Dick and I wanted to read just some of the lines from the opening paragraph that I think really capture what this movie is about. Nice. So th this is uh you know call me Ishmael the first lines. <laughs> This is Ishmael talking. Uh, and he says, Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos, hypos mean depression, especially mm. whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off then i account <laughs> it high time to get to see as soon as i can this is my substitute for pistol and ball wow this is the thing that keeps me from going nuts and killing myself yep getting out to see so wow like the the idea uh, of this character ishmael and and robert pattinson's character uh, Ishmael is un untrustworthy in a lot of ways. Like, uh, we, we don't know much about him. We don't even know if his name is Ishmael. Like, he, yeah, he's, they even call me Ishmael. Yeah, exactly. Could indicate that that's not my name. Exactly. So it's like, it, there's a lot of cloudiness to him and he's a social isolate. He's, he is disconnected from society and the only thing stopping him from killing himself most of the time is going out to sea. Uh, and so that that like gives us a little bit of one Thomas and a little bit of the other Thomas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 
I so uh, beyond that though, we also got Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And then specifically, I, I wanted to point this out because this is somebody you you don't hear her name a lot, but I actually read her in college. Sarah Orne Jewett. She's a New England writer. Okay. She uh, a lot of her uh, characters had this like she she was able to really capture the way people speak like vernacular like if you read her main accent in comparison to Stephen King's you it's so she writes it so much clearer like you can you can hear it in your your head way better the way she writes it like she, she's more a like a, don't go down that road yeah <laughs> more like that isn't it yeah exactly like <laughs> but uh uh Robert Eggers and Max Eggers, his brother, who wrote this, they they used a lot of lines directly from her uh, uh, seaman and, and cap sea captain characters from various novels and uh, short stories she wrote. Wow! Because she she was so capable of capturing just the way people spoke. And I think it's really got to be addressed that so much of the influence and inspiration for this movie too comes from old greek mythology and stuff yeah. and i think a yes, lot of it, it deals with the struggle of man and authority man yes. and the sea yes. all kinds of things that are explored here like to me yeah i was kind of suspecting through the whole movie that there was definitely sort of tones of this but then whenever you get to the very last shot and it's robert pattinson stranded on a rock with his liver being eaten by a bird it's right. like oh this is the prometheus story right Exactly. The man who stole fire, who stole light from the gods uh -huh. to benefit humanity and was punished for it. Exactly. That, okay, so we have to address one thing Robert Eggers said. He says that the entire movie up until those last few frames where we see him getting his liver eaten by gulls, uh, the entire movie is from Robert Pattinson's perspective. That's until, interesting. That's until interesting to know. Then, at yeah. that exact moment, he says it's the director's perspective. So that is the director showing us what he wants us to see at the end. Oh, and like, the director essentially being the, the God. God's eye view. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Interesting. So, so that means even, too, whenever Pattinson was having those uh, those visions, I guess you'd have to say, since this is all from his perspective, of what yeah. he imagined Defoe was doing up top in the lighthouse, where he was like yeah. shirtless and gazing at the light and talking sweet to it and stuff. Yeah. That was all Pattinson's imagination, I guess. Uh, maybe. Or maybe... Or at least what he thought was going on. Uh, well, see, because, like, what I would say is, like, specifically the one moment where we can sort of differentiate between what is uh, close to reality and what isn't reality is when he goes up there and he's wonder he's hearing him and he's wondering what's happening and then... Uh, some ooze drops down on him, and then he sees like a a, a octopus tentacle. Yeah, there's like a weird uh, Japanese hentai tentacle porn moment yeah. going on up there. Now, <laughs> now what what I will say happened in that moment, or at least how I read it, is Willem Dafoe was up there jerking off, and he I came, assume. and his cum dropped down, and he thought it was some sort of ooze because he's going crazy. So. We don't get that, though. We don't get to see all that. We only get some of the... Okay, hold on. I just spilt this entire beer. Oh, shit. <sighs> Fuck. 
<laughs> oh no, it was so good too. I say we just leave this in the episode. Give give us some radio drama, dude. Play it up, so, man. Is there sheer hysteria going on right now? Right now, okay, Ben. I am on. We're the, the world stock. Give me war of the right world here. I'm down on the scene, and it looks to me like a brown liquid has spilled. <laughs> a brown liquid. It has a it has a spicy sort of smell to it, and a little bit sweet. <laughs> I'm drawn in by the brown liquid, Ben. Oh. I think I'm just gonna drink up some of this. Oh my god, I'm turning into a monster! Oh, the humanity! <laughs> Tragedy strikes the podcast. Tragedy just struck everybody. Uh, I, my, my desk is full of shit because I have books all over the place and I just knocked over that awesome beer. Oh man. All over my desk. I, I, I got maybe like an eighth of it left. So I'd be licking that desk up, man, because oh, this is some good ass beer. Yeah, well, at least my office is gonna smell like it for a while. That's true. At least there is that. <laughs> oh, sorrow, man. Mm. All right. So anyway, I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> we were talking about some of the uh, the viewpoints and stuff, and how there's the tentacles up top. Ah, and all yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so I d- I think that I think that uh, there are times where you know we're not sure what's happening like you know we're not sure if it's willem defoe gaslighting him or whatnot but there are also the times where it's like well this isn't real like he's not a a sea creature and yeah, an octopus mermaids didn't aren't show up real upstairs. Yeah. yeah so i mean it makes it real hard because of Robert Eggers saying that this is from Pattinson's point of view, it makes it real hard then to know what is real and what isn't real. Yeah, but for sure. that actually makes the movie more readable. It makes it more comprehensible because if you're not sure what is real and what isn't real, you can just assume that none of it's real, except for the last moment where he's on the beach getting his lever liver eaten by a gull. Yeah, we know well, that happened. Like there, there has to be some sort of thing that happened in between after he actually goes up to the top of the lighthouse, and right. then when we see him on mm-hmm. the beach, because like last thing that we saw, as far as we know, is that he went up top to the lighthouse. He saw the light. He went crazy. He was still mm-hmm. wearing all of his clothes. Mm-hmm. He fell down the stairs, and then the next thing, he's naked on a rock on the beach. Yep. <laughs> like. Where did how did you get from point A he's to also point mi- Q there? He's you know? also missing his right hand. Did you notice that? No. Yeah, he's missing his right hand, which is not a part of the Prometheus myth that I found, but I think there's meaning to it for sure. I didn't notice that was in the final movie. Like I read a thing where it said in the original script mm-hmm. he was supposed to reach into the into the light of the lighthouse right. and have his hand burnt off, but they cut yeah, that. They cut that, but, but they still have him handless. Yeah, at the I didn't end. notice that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I have some theories about that that go into my major theory that he may very well be alone and, in fact, not even on an island. Fight club in it. Uh, sort of like it's his own journey in his head, uh, as he fights alcoholism, <laughs> like basically mm, it could yeah. be seen that way, though they're more interesting ways to see it. And I, I think the Prometheus myth 
is central to this for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you think that plays into this? Because I didn't really get much time to read up on any of it. All right, so I I try to just condense it down to what I think are the relevant moments, but this is basically the Prometheus myth. Uh, Zeus took the knowledge of fire from man because he was mad. You know how Zeus gets mad. Like he does. Yeah, and Prometheus, who's a, a trickster figure, he stole it back and restored it to humanity. And this enraged Zeus, you know, like it does. Like who, it does. He can't be having that. Yeah. He then had Hephaestus uh, fashion the first woman out of clay and sent her to live with mankind. That woman okay. was Pandora. Uh, Hephaestus was then cast from the heavens by Hera for being shriveled of foot. Hephaestus is going to come back. Uh, the shriveled of foot bit, I think applies when we're talking about him in comparison to Willem Dafoe. Okay. Because uh, Willem Dafoe claims to have a, a leg, a foot leg, injury. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so he he fell into the ocean and he was raised by Thetis, who's a goddess of water and a sea nymph and a daughter of, of uh, Nereus. Anyway, more about this. For the crime of stealing fire, Prometheus was bound by chains uh and an eagle was sent to eat his liver every day and it grew back every night is that with or without fava beans and a nice chianti now i think eagles prefer lima beans oh wow yeah yeah. sophisticated choice that's true and that's why uh the only bird that hannibal lecter will hang out with is the eagle i don't know if you knew that that. yeah i did not know that wow (laughs) and birds want to hang out with them it's a big sure. thing for birds to hang out with Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get the selfies with him and all that, yeah. Okay, so Prometheus does, it was eventually freed from that torment by Heracles. So, like, uh, the the way that uh, Prometheus has been... this All that comes from Hesiod, like, early, early, I think, like, 5th century BC. Uh, we're getting that. He's been... He's become this, like figure though that was real important in the romantic movement in the early 19th century where basically he represents this rebellious figure and is connected to like the french revolution connected to jesus connected to uh milton's uh satan character from paradise lost like connected to all these different things where basically uh and, and this also comes from plato the idea that Prometheus is this source of creative power and he's often presented in contrast to his brother Epimetheus who is the source of natural instincts. Now, this gets kind of this gets kind of played up between uh Thomas and Thomas, uh <laughs> Robert Pattinson and and Willem Dafoe yeah. where Willem Dafoe asks him early on if uh if he's slow uh if and it seems like in a lot of ways they're playing out the prometheus epimetheus uh like uh duality dynamic yeah yeah that dynamic where uh he has this natural instinct toward the sea and he sees he sees um, Prometheus, Robert Pattinson, as 
slow because he's thinking about things. He's putting thought into everything, and he's he's constantly analyzing everything that's going on. Whereas Willem Dafoe is more att- attuned to it all. It's all just natural to him. Okay, yeah. So I, I think some of that plays out. We also have the, you know, the connections of creative powers or creative people rebelling against the confines of modern society. Yeah, yeah, or any kind of authority figure and so yeah. forth. And that that's, I mean, Prometheus is just like a metaphor for that. He's this perfect representative of creativity. I... I would say we also have to talk about Proteus, Proteus. because Proteus was a, a Greek prophetic sea god. Uh, he's all, he was one of like a number of sea gods and goddess or sea gods or titans were called old man of the sea, but he's very specifically often called old man of the sea. Uh, he's the the god of elusive sea change. Wow. And he, the interesting thing about him is he he is prophetic as Willem Dafoe is. He prophes- he prophesies directly to Robert Pattinson, essentially damning him to his fate. Uh, but also, one thing you have to know about Proteus is that he answers only to the to those who are capable of capturing him. Hmm. Which the end of this movie is that like yeah it seems that way when you yeah, put it that way yeah yeah robert pattinson leashes him and then makes him do th- it's the first time that he answers to him uh so there there's there's those connections and also i think i think it's possible that willem dafoe is a hephaestus character somewhat because he he seems to be of the sea but also um uh, also godly in a separate way like because Hephaestus was he was living in you know uh, living amongst the gods before he was cast out into the sea so it, it's like uh, it, it's like there's so much mythology wrapped up in this and I know there are other smaller things that I could mention but I don't think it's worth going into every single mythological point that he was trying to make but there's so much here in this yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and of course there's name drops of Neptune and other yeah. mm-hmm. sea gods and stuff like that. And, yeah. and to me too, dude, like a lot of this movie to me reads very much like a like like a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways in yeah. that you have this guy, you know, Robert Pattinson, who is stranded on this rock in the middle of nothing, just like we are stranded here on, on Earth, right? Yeah. He's trapped there in his case um, with his with his god figure, his authority, which is Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. and very much kind of in the practice of the later Roman Hellenistic period, they started crafting the gods and the images of their gods and stuff very much like human beings. They were flawed, you know. Yeah. The Hellenistic era had flawed gods. They were ones right. that were jealous and vengeful right. and lustful and had all of these human-like qualities. This was always being about. a dick, always raising yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. So that was very much kind of the, the, the way that they characterized their gods and stuff at that time. And the way that I see so much of this movie is that 
he's stranded on this rock all alone, Pattinson, that is, with this god figure, you know, very much the uh, the god living atop Mount Olympus, you know? Right. Because even, even though they're stranded on this rock together, they are separated. Their schedules are totally different. Pattinson's not allowed to go up there to the, holies, the Holy of Holies, the lighthouse. Right. Which... Uh, Defoe very greedily keeps. It's mine. He says that yeah. so many times in this movie. It's mine to keep. Uh-huh. You're not to be up there. You know, this is my my space. This wisdom, this power, whatever, is mine. And meanwhile, while he's also you know stranded on this rock, also his very creator is the one that is throwing every temptation known to man at him and punishing uh-huh. him for indulging in them, whether that be the lustful object of the yeah. mermaid statue yeah, the whether that be show. the temptation yeah the temptation of alcohol which he's constantly plying him with i mean he's yeah. the one that's drinking first right and I, tempting fact, him with booze the whole time yeah he he doesn't have a drink until the night before their last day before they're supposed to be picked up which yeah. is about 49 minutes into the movie <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's like he's constantly plying him with all of these vices. It's like right. he's stranded here on this rock. His authority figure is demanding that he be a good boy and follow orders while also providing him with everything that he needs to break every rule possible. That's kind of just like classic Satan. You know, a Greek Greek tragedy, Satan. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, he yeah, he plays he plays out definitely. Yeah, as a, a a greek tragic figure as as uh he does have that like full-on constant temptation but also the then the supply of guilt afterwards sure which, yeah yeah i mean you could even see that as the jesus figure like he he fits into so many molds that it it becomes very hard for me considering you know how often you could say Willem Dafoe is is this type and and Robert Pattinson is this type and then they can switch it seems at times where suddenly yeah. now Robert Pattinson is this type and he's and it, it it that's why I kind of feel like maybe one of the simplest readings and easiest ways of looking at this is that it they are the same person that it's it's his own internal guilt and feelings of rage and and that that Willem Dafoe rep- to answer to a higher power too, right? W- Willem Dafoe like represents the the way he sees himself, and he's this you know he feels that he's this experienced and and capable uh, person, but in reality, that's all lies. Like, and and that's why I think you know constantly we could find that. He's he's questioning everything Willem Dafoe says because it, it doesn't add up. Yeah, and also rebelling against a lot of the things yeah. that he says too. You know, yeah, well, and also too, like again, that plays into the the religious angle from so many standpoints. Where you know, Willem Dafoe, the God figure, says that the lamp needs more oil. So right, Pattinson follows orders. He brings that whole barrel of oil up those stairs and mm-hmm. is then kind of chastised for being like, oh, yeah. no, you only needed to bring this much. You'll start a fire. Like, yeah. His his God figure was not there to even ask a question to, but he's getting punished for doing his best to follow orders. Which, you know? that's some straight up Old Testament shit. I mean, this is... That's some straight Old Testament shit, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah Moses goes up, the 
uh, God tells him, love God, love your fellow man. He takes it down. They don't like that. Comes back with 10 commandments. They don't like that. Eventually you get Levitical law where everything is prescribed down to the step. Like it, it's, it is. Yeah. I think it's playing out very much. Yes. A, a religious, like even Christian God there, but there's so much like every time you try to nail it down. I think that's where it, this movie is just so slippery. It really, really is. Even if you could say it's this way, you could also see him very much as a devil figure. You, and in fact, you could see that duality in him. Like he goes sure. from this, like seemingly real fun and uh, knowledgeable, but also ball busting sort of father figure to this absolute asshole who's potentially gaslighting him and like treating him like shit and driving him insane oh yeah yeah absolutely so and i want to talk more about that too but you know another thing that i see in this movie as far as the list of temptations go is i think the temptation of uh homosexuality the the homoerotic right slant of this movie i think is very heavy and i think that's also played out as another temptation for robert robert pattinson but of course that also gets into the whole um kind of oedipus complex yeah kind of that, shit too which again there. goes back to greek and roman myth that that is definitely there and i i think first we should deal with the homoeroticism and then get to the edible complex because the homoeroticism is i i read that people read that into it and after watching it the first time i was like i don't know that it's so much homoerotic as homosocial i think like a lot of times people just see men getting close and they're like yeah it was gay right but right yeah there is one particular moment that i could not identify with uh i all of the moments between them seem to me to be normal everyday dude shit like two men who are friends and get drunk together until he wants to kiss him he leans in yeah. so close. It yes, almost happens. And then it turns into a game of fisticuffs. Yeah. And then like, it's, oh, no, let's, no, let's be manly. Yeah. Let's be manly. Let's not instead. fuck. Let's fight. Yeah. Like, even the dancing, I just thought, like, oh, that could be a real sweet moment between two people who just haven't had human contact for a while. Like, right. But it goes way beyond that. It goes like, especially beyond the, that. Yeah. The second time that I watched it, I really picked up on. How many times Willem Dafoe talks about how pretty Pattinson yep. is? Yeah, pretty is a picture. Uh-huh. Him, yeah, like mm-hmm. several times refers to how pretty. Like he says something about how pretty his eyes are or yep. something like that in there too. Mm-hmm. They squabble like an old married couple. They do. Yeah, the and, the like, Dafoe gets upset that he doesn't like his cooking and shit. Yeah, like this. I would fuck a steak. That he doesn't just he doesn't get upset that he doesn't like his cooking. He gets jealous when he says I would fuck a steak. Yeah. Like that. Then he's oh you don't like my cooking. It's like, it it becomes a a married couple squabble. Like, he's suddenly jealous because he wants to stick his dick in a steak. He doesn't even say he wants to eat a steak. He just wants to fuck a steak. Yeah, yeah. Which just really revs up that there's some sort of uh, relationship beyond just a homosociality going on here. Sure. There is a desire and, and it's not one way we find because Robert Pattinson is the one who tries to kiss him. Like all the stuff leading up to that moment that I would say uh, is homoerotic comes from Willem Dafoe. Uh-huh, yeah. So, But the, that is, as you said, the temptation. He is tempting him toward it. 
And then right when he's about to fall to that temptation, uh, he he stops himself and turns it into a playful game of beat the shit out of each other. Like, I, I he doesn't fully fall to that, but could it be that when he's fucking the mermaid, like, who is he thinking of? Like, okay, he- let's talk. Yes, I'm glad you brought up the mermaid because let's talk about that. That's one of those things that to me was very telling about yeah. the the guilt I think that Pattinson yes. was feeling about the temptation of his homosexuality. Yeah. Um. Or even even if it is just I don't know any better thing to call it other than like convenience homosexuality, which is something I guess you could say is akin to like straight guys go into prison and they yeah. end up fucking a guy because yeah. humans need sexual contact. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, if you do read Moby Dick, and again, I I'm highly recommending it. Uh, if you do read Moby Dick, uh, nobody who reads it will ever think that Ishmael and Queequeg aren't gay lovers. Like, it's about a big white dick, dude. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But like, <laughs> one of the earliest scenes in the. the book is Ishmael meeting Queequeg and then them sleeping together in a bed like I mean that that is not entirely unnormal in mid 19th century America yeah. but the way it's described gets much more homoerotic than it would be expected if it was just two friends sharing a bed wow so interesting. Uh, I, I think like Again, Robert Eggers is is our modern Herman Melville. Like I think he yeah. he's exploring some of those same things where it's like when you're out to sea, you pick a buddy and he's your buddy. Right. <laughs> like uh yeah, convenience convenient. I guess it's not cuz like homosexuality is supposed to designate like um a, an actual like inclination entirely towards having sex with people of the same sex. And this seems more like sexual fluidity, where sure, yeah, like they're cool with it, whatever. Like anything's fine. Yeah. Well, but you know, with the mermaid tie-in, as far as like that becomes Pattinson's object of, of sexual desire and sexual frustration too. Later on, as he breaks the statue and tries to stab it with a knife. Right. Um. To me, that really that speaks very- of the fact. Sorry. I was gonna say, I mean, a knife is a very phallic object, and obviously, like and, he, and dude, yeah. this this movie is full of knives and keyholes yeah. and very mm-hmm. phallic and yonic objects. Yeah. The entire fucking movie, very yeah. obviously. I mean, dude, the lighthouse is a big dick. It's about two guys in a big dick with each other. Yeah, I mean, that's what uh, Robert Eggers said. He said nothing good happens Clearly. when two men are alone in a giant phallus. Like, yeah, exactly. It, it, but you know, to me, the the mermaid. Uh, statue and then the mermaid itself clearly is just a figment of Pattinson's imagination. Uh, Defoe never interacts with it. The mermaid no. never interacts with the story whatsoever. The no. mermaid never swims up to shore and sings him a song. No. Like It's entirely a fictionalized thing in Pattinson's head. And the thing that I kind of got about it is that he is so much more comfortable with um, I don't know what the word that I'm looking for is, putting his sexual feelings and his sexual frustrations on a mythical creature that doesn't even exist, yeah. like a mermaid, yeah. then he is just accepting the fact that yes. he could have sex with this guy that he's 
trapped on this rock with for weeks on end. Absolutely. He would much rather pursue something that's not even real, but it is a woman. That is his way of defending his masculinity or his, you know, straight sexuality, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I, the, okay, so in a book called The Mermaid and the Minotaur, uh, Dorothy Dinnerstein argues that human-animal hybrids like mermaids and minotaurs are supposed to convey the emergent understanding of ancient human beings that that we're oh. both uh uh we're one with and different from animals and what she really gets at is the embrace of our humanity and the embrace of our animality and i think that's that's why a mermaid was picked as the thing he fucks because she is this embracing of animality like he's he's that his animal desire is to have sex with willem dafoe yeah and so he the thing he fucks is this representation of that embracing of the animal desire wow yeah yeah, yeah. so in other words it's not just that he was fantasizing about fucking a woman it was this animal woman yeah exactly so like mm. he because like he could have just fantasized a woman like why, yeah totally why would, why would he have to fantasize a very clear image of a shark vagina on a woman yeah well like, that shit was weird yeah, <laughs> that shit was strange, so weird yeah it's a strange choice but like again it's because he's not interested in a woman He's interested in being able to embrace his animal desire and have sex with Willem Dafoe. That's wow, why yeah. he breaks down crying after he jerks off that one time when he's just staring at it and then like having... So weird, man. Yeah, like, he he's... He is... It, all of it's falling apart. And, and it seems to me that, like, the way near the end he sees Willem Dafoe as the guy that he let die in the logging accident yeah Ephraim uh, or whatever yeah Ephraim the guy the name he says is his Ephraim Winslow yeah uh, when we see that guy that guy is pretty yeah like, he is he's like this beautiful blonde guy right kind of reminds me of uh what's his name in Fight Club yes yes uh Jared Leto in Fight Club there yeah. you go yeah yeah uh exactly like he he is pretty and I I feel like uh he he says things like I could have put my hook in the back of his head. That's what I like, was gonna say, dude. He snuck up behind him and hooked him. It's like, come on, man. This is yeah. kind of obvious what's happening here. Yeah. So I, I think yeah he 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 was trying to escape his gay lover that he let die. Uh, and or just escape. escape the temptation of yeah. having sex with a man. Yeah, and went That's to true. Penis Island with God. <laughs> yeah, went to Penis Island with God. Pen and, Island. <laughs> and fucked and fucked a mermaid. So Yeah. God, what a movie. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I think oh, also man. the the choice of the mermaid image is interesting because I think it also carries with it the Fiji mermaid connection of, you know, PT Barnum's exaggerations and lies. Yeah. Like the mermaid the scrimshaw mermaid i have to assume was made by willem dafoe i'm just assuming i mean i guess you're talking about the little, the, the little uh talisman kind of thing yeah 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 
I, I'm assuming, but maybe it was brought by. I, I just don't believe there was a guy there before. Like I, for, I wonder about that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Or the whole if there thing was, about the, the previous did he do the same thing? Yeah, yeah, I, I just and two. Isn't there something just so vaguely, or maybe obviously sexual about the fact that Pattinson pulls out that sexual totem out of a hole in the bed with uh, yes. wadding in the bed that looks like pubes? It's hair. Yeah, it's a hair mattress. That would have. That was pretty yeah. normal. Yeah. I mean, it's just it so looks like a, obviously it's a, sexual. Yeah, it's obviously sexual. And I, my assumption was that whoever was there before was fucking the bed. I would guess. And also, yeah. too, there's that shot where Pattinson kind of spies in through the shingles yeah. on Defoe, and he looks like he's kind of like doing a little bed humping, too. Yeah. So, I I mean, it's it's there's so much in this to indicate, uh, you know, not only self-pleasure but a desire for pleasure from someone of the same sex. Yeah. That it may seem foolish for me to say that I think this movie is more about alcoholism than any of that. Okay, yeah. So you think that that's kind of the big angle, huh? I think alcoholism is the big angle. uh, And the only way for that to work is with my theory that there's only one person and there's not an actual physical location that this is all happening within his head. It uh, makes you wonder, honestly. Yeah. Cause especially yeah. considering that, like you said earlier, the entire movie that we see is just Pattinson's point of view. Yeah. And then this the, might just be him just, you know, in a, in an alcoholic stupor, right. A fucking fever dream or some shit like this yeah. after he's killed this guy on the logging expedition and is feeling the guilt of it and so on. Yeah. You just don't know. I mean, to see, the Prometheus myth of the punishment being that each day your liver is is attacked and then the next okay, day yeah, it's fine. very telling of alcoholism. Very telling of alcoholism. I, I don't huh. think this is a connection that is normally made with Prometheus. I think this movie may be one of the first. But yeah. I think at the end what it's showing us, the God's eye view is this: this is his punishment. To, to constantly uh, Pound his die liver. in this yeah in this alcoholic stupor to basically just have his liver be eaten away uh, and and I think it is from the guilt of letting the guy he wanted to have sex with die in that log flume like I I think he's trying to escape that that guilt and the guilt of having that sexual desire for for other men but he's he's doing that through alcohol and the the beginning of the the movie when they sit down the first time like he he seems to be and pattinson said this about the the character that he he took it as the character was in his first moments of sobriety so and that's why he's obviously a heavy drinker and this yeah. is his like return back to sobriety yeah, and so that's why he's constantly, you know, not having the drink. And and he's tempted and tempted and tempted. And he sees, and th- this is something that I would, I think, you know, most addicts deal with. You get to that point where you feel like, well, I probably could have a drink and it wouldn't be a big deal. And that's uh-huh. what, that's the point. The point is that, that last night before they're supposed to be picked up, that's the point where he he falls to the temptation and then that's when everything goes crazy and Mm, we we can't trust anything past that moment well that's Uh, an interesting thing too that i was wanting to ask you about is like 
how much of the movie is he's crazy? Like, do you think he's crazy when he shows up, or do you think it's something that grows yeah. as he's well, there? It, it kind of goes think... back to The Shining, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it, again, alcoholism. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. He is. He's crazy in in a lot of ways because, uh, as an addict, as an alcoholic, as a dependent, he's he's trying every way he can to avoid all this, like just doing the work and. It seems like he would have complained earlier if he didn't feel like it was a just punishment mm. for whatever he was going through. Like yeah. he he just does all the work and lets Willem Dafoe push him around and never says boo. Like he he's he's fine with it until a certain point when finally he starts drinking and now he's got a lot to say. Now yeah, he's true. now he's uh he's got all sorts of reasons why you know he's mad at Willem Dafoe and Willem Dafoe needs to help him and all these other things. So I I don't know like he he is he is dealing with issues from the moment we see him, first moment we see him. Yeah, yeah, I think so too, and it's especially like the second time that I watched it, you kind of realize that like he's never really completely glued together. He's always. A little bit off, even from the get-go, probably just due to him being, you know, on the lam for murdering this guy and dealing yeah. with the guilt of killing him and so on. I don't think that he's ever really got it all together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think this is... Okay, so there's a part where Willem Dafoe... This is early on, I think maybe the second night... Uh, he says, what's the terrible part of a sailor's life, ask you lad? Tis when the work stops. When the doldrums. When you're twixt wind and water. Eviler than the devil, boredom makes men to villain. And the water goes quick, lad. The only yeah. medicine is drink. Okay, so he's telling him, he, he's got this like, very sort of impassioned way of speaking. And he's telling him, look. If you let yourself get bored, you're gonna go crazy. So you need to drink. But the thing is, everything he tells them, we could easily put together. Like, okay, if he ki he kills that seabird and the wind changed, uh, he he does a, a few things that that go against like sailor superstitions. And everything he tells them could add up to that's what happened. Yeah. But it seems more that he is tempting him toward the insanity he's That's gaslighting him yeah he's yeah. gaslighting him and saying like oh no no you'll go crazy if you don't drink instead right. of yeah like you know if you start drinking you'll definitely go crazy like and this is this is the i mean i it seems from what i've read about addiction and when i've read uh descriptions of addiction it seems that there is that voice in your head that comes in and says like, you know, really like you're actually probably going to be worse off if you don't drink. Like you really right now, if you had a drink, you'd, you'd probably feel a little bit better and you'd be more capable to not have another drink. Like yeah. there's always just that like ways of logic your brain is trying to find to get that thing that it, it's like craving. Uh, so that again is what made me think like all these times he's talking to him and he's obviously lying like it seems like 
it's a representation of what his mind is saying to him and eventually he gives in and when he does give in he eventually has his mind on a leash like a dog because he's given his mind exactly what it wants so it'll just fucking lead him on a leash and then he just kills it because (laughs) now they're they're one and the same there, and then he gets no his liver difference. eaten for all eternity. And then he gets his liver eaten for all eternity because he's given into his alcoholism. Wow. Man, yeah. when you put it that way, that actually makes complete fucking sense. It does, but it's not it it doesn't explain everything. And that's like that's why I can't like I that's why I would say that is a simple reading of the movie. It's a way of putting it into a like a box and saying, This movie's about alcoholism. But it doesn't explain everything that happens in the movie, nor does it yeah. really get us at what the nature of Willem Dafoe is. Like, sure, is it is he a devil? Is he an angel? Is he is he is he gnawing addiction, or is he an actual sea god? Yeah, because there's even those scenes where like. Pattinson is like beating him to death, and he uh-huh. appears as like fucking Neptune for a yeah. second. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh which is which is interesting because I think during that that scene where he's you know beating him to death essentially it's like he sees his again possibly former gay temptation he sees the mermaid he sees Neptune yeah it's like he sees everything that he's trying to 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 conquer and I mean even seeing him as Neptune is interesting because he's essentially killing God at that point yes <laughs> it's crazy. What yeah, it's a just moment. like man's struggle against everything, against yeah. himself and everything around him. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, the choice to make it, instead of being a ship on the sea, to make it a, an island, I think has to do with the difference between, you know, as I said, Prometheus is this representation of, of, of creatives, in a lot of way and it has yeah. to, it has to do in a lot of ways with the way that uh creatives artists uh are putting themselves out there they're not like a ship on the sea they're more like an island because what they're doing is saying firmly this this is me this is my voice this is who i am and they are surrounded when they're not held up by anything they're just saying this is me there's my oh, big and, bright and lights. Here's my big booming. Yeah. yeah. Here's my big booming foghorn. Look at me. And by doing that, you then get assaulted from all sides. Yes. You know, there are a million benefits to being an artist, to being a creative. But that is the existence of an artist is being an island yeah. in some ways. Being this thing that that you have to uphold and have to fight against the winds and the waves to to maintain. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's a cool way to look at it, too. And it's also, you know, probably no coincidence that a lot of creatives end up being addicts and alcoholics, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what, like, led me down that path was because it was like, I mean, uh, you know, you see that with so many, I mean, just my own experience. I, I love drinking. It's fun. It, yeah. uh, it kind of helps you shut off your brain. Absolutely. <laughs> it's nice to be able to shut that off. But you also see creatives fall fully into that addiction because they can never shut their brain off and it, they just don't right. want to think about it anymore. 
Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and too, like, I wonder how deep the gaslighting in this really goes because right. with with um, Defoe immediately establishing his authority on the island that, you know, you will do absolutely everything I say, even if I ask you to take this entire building apart nail by nail, uh-huh. clean and then reassemble the whole thing. You are under my authority. The light is mine. You uh-huh. are never to come up here and you're to listen to every word that I say. Just immediately putting himself in that authority position... Um, and then, like we said earlier, tempting him with everything along the way and saying, you'll go crazy if you don't drink. And then being like, hey, did you know weeks have passed since that boat was supposed to pick right. us up? And then, hey, did you know you chopped up that boat that you <laughs> just watched me chop up? Uh-huh. How much of this is him fucking with him, using his authority position as, as a god figure? Yeah. And how much of it is not? It's so hard to say. Yeah, it, I mean, if we look, if we just take it as a reality, if we believe this story, then he is fully manipulating him the entire time, and he he would then have to be, I would think, a sea god who knows that yeah. he can't hurt him, he can't kill him, that anything he does to him is just his whim, and and not up to Robert Pattinson. So. And in a yeah. lot of ways, isn't that just like the cruel games that Greek and Roman gods would play yeah. on, on humans? Yeah. You know, that is exactly. And, and even yeah, Christian biblical stuff. Exactly. Like the, yeah. The story like of Job, Job and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. These are just like the <laughs> hey, cruel God, gods. You know that guy who likes you a lot? I bet I could fuck up his life. And God's like, so he'd still like me. <laughs> yeah. Bet you, bet you he couldn't. It's just <laughs> fucked up, man. But it's like that's kind of ingrained in every religious uh, myth in history. Yeah. It is. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I I think when you start getting toward the idea of the modern self around the Renaissance, um, the idea of the individuality and uh, self-desires and desires to be something more, uh, I think that that's when we start seeing the Christian God being looked at as this maybe somewhat trickster character and yeah. that's when the devil becomes more prominent so that they can take some of the trickster elements of god and put it on something that's not supposed to be divine and perfect yeah make it so, the bad guy doing that stuff instead yeah so like yeah you read the old testament or new testament and you can see like an imperfect kind of god but through a thousand years of reading the same stuff over and over they found a way to separate the things that they didn't like about the god character and and force them onto this devil character that if you read the bible is is hard to pick out i mean the devil that we know really does come from milton in a lot of ways yeah yeah and of course one of the things that we've absolutely got to talk about here is just the the cast and their their performances. This is a extremely yeah. small cast movie. It's basically uh-huh. just Pattinson Defoe, the mermaid who has no speaking lines. Yeah. Even the the two former lighthouse guys that we see walking off as they walk onto the island, they have no speaking lines. Yeah, so we it's don't even see just, their faces. Yeah, it's these two guys. And what do yeah. you think about their performances? I mean, this is one of those deals that Obviously, we all know and love Willem Dafoe. He's been yeah. so many incredible characters. Robert Pattinson has the burden of always being the fucking Twilight guy. Well, he did before this, I think. I think now he's that, that's gone. I, I, I hope I, so. I, I think if, if you haven't seen this and you still think Robert Pattinson is just a Twilight guy, 
watch this. He's not. You might be a redneck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are other <laughs> movies he's done in between that proved that he was more than just the Twilight guy. But this is this is like a, a wonderfully amazing performance that's raw oh, and yeah. and just he he put everything into it and it's amazing. I, yeah, I like I think that. So Will, too. Willem Dafoe, I mean, it it's a goddamn masterclass in being a crazy sea guy. Uh, but he <laughs> he apparently watched The Witch and loved it and emailed Robert Eggers and said, like, love The Witch. I'd, uh, I'd like to be in anything you do really? in the future. Yep. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Pattinson was cast, but Willem Dafoe was just like, oh, Willem Dafoe wants to be in my movie? Let's write a Willem Dafoe part. <laughs> yeah, let's put him in here, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things, man, that like we talked about uh, whenever we did Twilight as a wildcard episode, in my head, Robert Pattinson was, of course, Twilight guy. Because yeah. I'd seen that movie and been like, man, he's fucking horrible in here. And then I read the book and I was like, oh, he had nothing to work with. Yeah, it wasn't Anybody his Anybody would have been horrible. Yeah, yeah. And somebody had to get that paycheck. And Robert Pattinson was very, like, broke at the time. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't get begrudging actors' roles. I don't Hell get no. it. It would be no. like if you uh, you found out that Michael Keaton worked at McDonald's and you said, well, he's not a good Batman then. Like, <laughs> Batman would never work at McDonald's. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, it, yeah. it, you need the job. I guarantee you from knowing a bunch of actors who literally would take anything they could, if you got offered the role of Edward Cullen, you're not going to turn it down because yeah, you, you don't want people to remember you as Edward Cullen. Because you want people to remember you as having food and not dying on the street. <laughs> That's a much better way to be remembered, I think. Yeah. So, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it makes sense if uh, you hear Will Smith took some ridiculous part. It's like, he doesn't need the money. What is he doing this for? But even then, maybe he wanted to do it. That's up to him. But when a, a young actor takes one of those roles, let's give him some room to grow. Let's let yeah, him no expand. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. And he absolutely crushes in this movie. A again, it's that thing where it kind of gives him a little bit of help that I went in with low expectations because the, literally the last thing I watched with him in it was fucking Twilight. Of course, yeah. I know he's a way better actor than what he right. portrayed in that movie. But I still went into it with low expectations, and he crushed it. But then, dude, like, Willem Dafoe has that unfortunate position of the fact that we all know that he's incredible. So it's like, whenever yeah. he knocks it out <laughs> of the park, you're like, well, obviously he did. Yeah. Uh, whenever you have that certain kind of pedigree, excellence can almost kind of be downplayed, right? Yeah, it could. And that that that's true. I mean, because he's amazing in this. Like, he, he, yeah. he performed, like, he, that curse... When he curses him, oh, it, you mean when he cuts the best WWF promo of all time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen here, Tommy. <laughs> Neptune's gonna drag you down to the depths where your bones will rot. Dude, he just that. goes and goes A and goes and does single it blink. unblinking shot. Dude, it is amazing. And don't you Fucking love too love how even during those like long ass takes of him just like talking shit. The camera, which we'll talk about the camera work in a second too, the camera is like kind of out of focus on him a lot of times yeah. during that speech. But they're yeah. like, this is so electric, you won't give a fuck. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that a couple of times. I, and that probably had to do with the, the lenses you were talking about earlier. <laughs> like, they, totally. they had some difficulty working with those lenses and, and getting the lighting right and stuff to work with the film and, and things that they were using. So, yeah, I mean, if something was a little bit out of focus or whatever and it hit right, what does it matter? That actually is more, that that fits more into the silent film aesthetic of it because that's true. You yeah, they get, hadn't perfected that it at lot. that time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, I I just I want to because we're talking about Willem Dafoe. I just want to talk about some of the great lines that he oh, says. Oh man, dude, and, there's so much of this shit that is like entering my everyday vocabulary. Immediately. Yeah. The next yeah. time I take a pull of something that's just good and strong and awesome, you can goddamn well bet I'm looking up to the skies and screaming monkey pump. You goddamn monkey bet I pump. Am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if he improvised that or not, but it's, I have no idea. it was so profound to me. Because, like, a little bit after that, we see Robert Pattinson, like, going crazy and he starts, like, laughing and clapping and he's, like, he's doing it like a chimp. Like the way he's uh, yeah, laughing, he's so. like showing his teeth that. and like head back and like, it, it's so crazy, like just so perfect. But uh, I really loved after, you know, he says bad luck to kill a seabird and Robert Pattinson's like, hey, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, no, bad luck. To, and he like yells at him. And after that, Spice he's like, shit out of him. yeah. And then after that, it's like, pay me no mind, lad. None. I feel that. He's got, dude, he's got his like time. head down and st- yeah. he looks like, like a beaten dog. Yeah, I feel that all the time because, like, if I lose my temper, I I want the people to know I just lost my temper on. Like, I really that was all about me. That's not about you. Pay me no mind. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get it. Uh, there. I mean, I wish I I would just memorize that fucking curse. It's amazing. I want to like, be able to lay every, that down on a motherfucker, just like fucking yeah. uh, Sam Jackson does with that Bible verse <laughs> in Pulp Fiction. I want to yeah. have that on deck just to lay down some cold-ass medieval shit on somebody whenever I okay. need to. Okay, whenever he's uh, he's talking to him about the floors not being clean. Yeah. <laughs> Unwiped, unwashed, and disdained. I love that. <laughs> I am now going to refer to every dirty thing as that. That is amazing. <laughs> you smell of shit? This place is in disarray. <laughs> <laughs> That's a queer way to wear your shoes. That oh, dude. Like, that line so is interesting. So much dialogue interest. is gold. That is so interesting because that's okay. We were talking about the knife being phallic, and he's about he's like got the knife like pointed at him yeah. in his sleep, and then he wakes up, looks over, and then says, "Queer way to wear your shoes." And it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is he talking about? That is the strangest response to waking up to somebody having a knife at your throat. Right. You know. But uh, it, I just, it's amazing. Like how how. I, he also says, and this is this is pure poet poetry right here. He says, "Now I'm a wiki, and a wiki I is." It's just this like great reflective language, and it also does this indication of like he he is his profession, but he he's like the typification of his profession. Like not only is he a wiki. But he is the wiki, like what a wiki is. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And dude, isn't so much of the dialogue just downright Shakespearean, just in the way that they choose the weirdest phrases to say things? Like you you were pointing out earlier that phrase where 
you know, all that Willem Dafoe wants is to be able to like light his pipe or his cigarette oh or whatever. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is genius. I really love because okay. <laughs> so this is after they've had that big storm and the 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 cabin is flooded. And, and they're he, then living punk rock as hell, dude. Like they yeah. wake up oh, in yeah. this fucking place, it's in shambles. Yeah. He pisses in a pot that's floating in the water, yeah. pukes just in the fucking, water, then kneels in it. It's just, SLC punk as serious. fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> punk rock in this movie. So uh, he grabs his pipe and, uh, you know, he's looking around for something to light it. And he says, fiery pit. Ain't there no justice <laughs> left in this world? And uh, that is so genius because what what he is saying is fi- fiery, he, fiery pit as in hell. Ain't there no justice left in this world? Again, he's talking about hell, but the reason he's saying that is to indicate he needs fire. Exactly. Yeah, to conjure up the imagery that of is a fiery so place. so Shakespearean. It's oh, so yeah. Per- it's just perfectly poetic and wonderful. And, and it's also, that's an interesting moment because if, if we're saying Robert Pattinson is our Prometheus, he gives him fire, which is part of the... Uh, like Zeus, uh, Prometheus, man, uh, intertangling where, yeah, you know, yeah. this, this whole, like it, he, he has this fire. And if, if we're considering this to be a God as well, when does Prometheus ever steal fire and give it to humanity? Like if the Prometheus myth fits and it has, it has to fit in some way because the ending clearly. is yeah. clearly Prometheus. Like, is this the representation? Are we saying, I guess, like, is it possible Willem Dafoe is a representation of humanity? Hmm. Is this when he's bringing fire to humanity? Is this when his punishment is, is now laid out? Well, you also picked up on some some things about Robert Pattinson's character handling fire and handling yes. light that I didn't notice. This is yeah, fascinating he, to he me. He can't keep anything lit. He can't keep his cigarette lit when he lights a match. It doesn't burn down to his fingers. It just burns out halfway through. Like He, it, he lights Defoe's pipe. Defoe can handle fire and light with his yeah. godlike status, but Defoe, or, I'm sorry, Pattinson can't yeah, handle he, it. He just can't handle it. He can't keep it lit. So it's, it's it's a constant reminder that if he were the lighthouse keeper, he could not keep the lighthouse lit. Wow. That's so, cool. And and then too, like at the very end, dude, whenever he goes up there and looks into the light and the screaming is all distorted and he's got yeah. the light in his eyes. Uh-huh. Oh my God. It's so it's like fucking black metal to me or something. Yes. It's all just an assault on your senses. Like uh-huh. the sound is so harsh the light is so bright. It's getting so loud. It's fucking black metal, dude. Yes. And oh, and what about that dream that he has where he's like on the ground and Defoe is positioned above him and he's naked and in a very muscular pose and his eyes are shining on him like yeah. the light of the lighthouse. Okay. Fuck, yeah. Man, that imagery is sick. That is amazing. Yeah. That that's seriously probably one of the best images in the entire movie because it, oh, it, yeah. it just. It conveys so much, but is still so enigmatic. I, I'm not positive what they were getting at. What I was thinking they were getting at was that Will, in, in his mind, at least, Willem Dafoe wasn't just the keeper of the light, but he was the light. 
Mm-hmm. And or that, you could also use it as a way to say that a lighthouse is the thing that is illuminating everything about you. It could be illuminating all of your all of your sins, your guilt, your inner monologue, right. whatever it is. Like yeah, you're yeah. seeing through him, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't know, man. It's, that's just like, it was like a painting. Like, it, it looks gorgeous. Absolute Absolutely. wonderful moment. And, you know, I'll say another thing about the characters, too. In addition to their incredible portrayals of this growing madness and suspicion and all this multi-layered dramatic shit man alive the humorous elements in this movie are extremely fantastic there's not <laughs> yes. a lot of them there's but not dude, but there's they're, they're great yeah after that huge you know ultimate warrior promo speech that defoe gives like cursing him uh cursing pattinson that is pattinson goes all right have it your way then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like the dumbest, yeah. shortest response yeah. ever to this gigantic dramatic speech that was just given. Yeah. God, it cracks me up. And then, of course, later they're having that argument about like he doesn't like Defoe's cooking. It is like you like my lobster. Say it. <laughs> like yeah. it's so dryly, weirdly funny at times. It is because it's so it's so strange and outrageous. Like that that this man who is so he's so. He seems to be this hardened man, but he's really hurt by the idea that he doesn't like his food. Yeah. Well, again, that that's kind of the Hellenistic thing. It's like yeah. you prescribe a, a god an attribute like that, like yeah. a human would be insulted about exactly. that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So I think that kind of ties into that as well. You and know? it also works if he's Neptune that it's not only he's cooked the lobster but it is his lobster it is of his domain you, oh, you don't okay. even appreciate the things i've given you like oh, uh yeah, yeah there's the gifts a, from the sea yeah there's there's a good bit going on with that i i think uh, yeah you're right the all right have it your way then i like i do like <laughs> i do so like funny. your cooking but the thing the thing is he never said he didn't like his cooking no <laughs> he was just being accused of it vehemently <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I, that response is so perfect because it's like i don't actually dislike your cooking but i'll let you feel like you won this one all right yeah have it your, have way. It your way then <laughs> Yeah, the, the cabin fever aspect of this and several other things about it definitely did also remind me of, you know, my all-time favorite flick, which is The Shining, of course. Yeah. And especially the second time I watched it, I picked up on more of this stuff. When you've got Willem Dafoe towards the end of the movie chasing Robert Pattinson with an axe while yeah. limping. Mm-hmm. Like, some of that imagery is straight out of whenever you've got Jack yeah. Torrance chasing Danny out into the hedge maze at the yeah. end of The Shining. For sure. The way he's holding the axe, the way the camera is on his back, is straight up exactly like that. But then another thing, too, that was even more obvious to me that plays into some of the soundtrack stuff, that scene where Pattinson thinks that he's, like, disposed of Defoe, and then right. Defoe shows back up with the axe. The soundtrack is doing this bum, 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 bum kind of thing. Just like the soundtrack in The Shining does, like whenever oh. Wendy is is walking through the house and stuff. And it's very offbeat for the rest of the soundtrack. That's not a theme that's huh. been in there before, but they chose that exact time to do it. It's the same soundtrack bump that happens whenever Jack Torrance axes huh. Scatman Carruthers. It's the same soundtrack bump. I mean, it's not literally the same sample, but it's right, the exact but, same theme. Yeah. That's interesting because I, I do think that the one, another element of the shining that is in there that is kind of informing my my reading that that you know maybe it's all in his imagination 
is is that idea that like maybe this is like his Lloyd, uh, that Willem Dafoe is is oh yeah whatever Lloyd was supposed to represent, or maybe Willem Dafoe is his uh you know uh, old caretaker. What was his name? Crap, Grady. Mr. Grady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's maybe Mr. Grady. Uh, there there are a number of ways of looking at it. But you, it really does get like sort of cemented that that possibility that he is when he says himself, Willem Dafoe, I'm probably a figment of your imagination. Oh, this yeah, rock dude, is that's... a figment of your imagination too. Yeah. Like, and again, that... that's like ultimate gaslighting. He's it like, is. Maybe this is all in your fucking head. Maybe it's all in your head. But then it's like also if he is if he is telling truths, then. Maybe he's tr- like that's his brain, like trying to shake him out of it. Like this isn't real, but it's also like that would come across as gaslighting if you were in a certain mind state. So like, how much of what he's doing is gaslighting, and how much is it him telling the truth, and we're just not getting to see it from his perspective? Yeah, dude, it's all over uh, the it's, place. It's, it's hard it's to figure out. Watchable for that reason, because you could yeah. you could sit back and watch it with so many different expectations and it would still make sense. Like you could watch it as this is one guy dealing with his guilt. You could watch it as this is Prometheus. You could watch it as this is man and God. Yeah. There's so many ways to watch it and they all make sense. Actually. It's true. They do. They all make sense. I think, uh, if somebody were to watch this and, and have trouble making sense of it, I entirely understand. If someone were to watch totally. this and it's say, there's no sense to be made, you're way off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If this, if you watch this and think, oh, it didn't mean anything, I think that you're way off. Yeah. yeah, you're right, though. It's like this is such a slow burn, introspective, weird, weird fucking movie that I, I get it. Like, if you're a horror fan that loves Freddy and Jason exclusively, yeah, maybe this is not you don't like yeah. this. Yeah. You know? And I uh, get it. I, I think we, uh, we've we put off talking about the Oedipal stuff, and we should talk about the psychoanalysis sure. bits in here, uh, but I don't want to go too far into them, because one, uh, I I know psychoanalysis, I it is a definite valid way of reading things because people have read Jung and read Freud, and they are writing with that in mind. Uh, though I don't love the framework of Freud and, and Jung, it, it's really like man centric, uh, <laughs> and uh, kind of treats women as not having many motivations. Mm. Uh, but in this case, we're definitely working because Edgar said he was working from like Jungian psychology and things. So we're dealing with, uh-huh. we're dealing with, uh, possibly Oedipal situation but the problem there is that the Oedipal complex is the desire to kill the father in order to obtain the mother and there's no mother here is there mm, yeah no unless no. unless we say the sea is the mother or the light itself or the, the light yeah I mean, that, that could work yeah the light could be the mother and and uh yeah yeah he's uh He's monopolizing access to the mother, so yeah, he right, kills yeah. him to get him. Yeah, that works perfectly. Which, isn't that cool too? Considering so much of the framework that we found in the witch was dealing with the the mother daughter relationships right. in that movie, mm-hmm. and this is kind of about son and father, and and father son. whether yeah, that yeah. be father God or father father. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, as I was saying. Like, it, I think I think yeah, the the witch is this really good sort of 
feminist message that comes from a, a male perspective but I, I think he did a good job uh, that would be of course up to any women listening to determine yeah, if he, sure. he did a good job of representing women uh but it, it's also because he was so disconnected from it that maybe he was able to make a clearer more concise narrative whereas with this every man is connected to that father-son dynamic whether it be father not being there or you know constant clashes with the father or just father worship you know seeing your father as this great guy and really wanting to be like him like any yeah. one of those different ways of uh son father relationships uh, affects the way you you deal with masculinity and specifically uh can affect how toxic your level of masculinity is uh, yeah, yeah. it can get very toxic if say you have this disconnect complete disconnect from your father where you you feel as though all men are maybe as as detached or um what am i trying to say like uncaring yeah uncaring as this father who left you or like you, you can see how that can can lead to toxic masculinity. Though the same can happen in the hero worship, where a, a son sees his father as this uh, in like infallible figure, and so whatever he does is right. And his father may in fact be absolutely terrible and horrendous. I mean, yeah, you, well, you could probably and, and, look at uh, maybe one of the Trump boys and see that yeah. going on. <laughs> Well, and also, too, I think this also head-on deals with the, and again, it, it could be the, the, the paradigm of a, of a man and his God, or a, a boy and his father figure, or a man and any authority figure. Right. Of the resentment that comes with um, someone above you telling you that they are in absolute power, and that you right. have to obey every single word that they ever do. It's kind of in man's nature to rebel against that, whether that be against yeah. your dad, or your God, or whoever. Yes. Uh, this movie deals with that very, very head on. Yeah, as the witch did. I mean, the witch was about rebellion Absolutely. against the patriarchy. Like this, this again. Yeah, it, it, there, it may still have that same sort of theme of rebellion against the patriarchy, where this yeah. is yeah, this yeah. absolute authority that has all control, and and you just want to be able to go up to the top of the lighthouse like and he won't let you like it, it if if he's not the god neptune and if he does exist and he's just gaslighting him like there's nothing to the lighthouse like there's nothing about it that is particularly special like if, if we eliminate all the mythology possibilities and things the only thing about the lighthouse is special is that it is off access uh which is i mean could be said to be true about many different things that are considered sacred in religion is that the thing that makes them sacred is that no one has access to them except for very few people yeah but it's not it's not special or magical or it's just kept it's maintains this magical aura because you're unable to see it Right. So yeah, yeah. the the gaslighting that's going on, and, and I, 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 it wasn't until I really thought about it that I was like, gaslighting is what their job is. 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah, they're lighting yeah. gas. So for for the gas, the psych psychological gaslighting to be occurring while they're performing their job, which is gaslighting, is it's a real interesting way of reading it. Like because he is a wiki and a wiki he is, as he says, like. Is he saying like I I I gaslight and I gaslight? Like, yeah, I exist for this. This is my entire yeah. existence. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, then that's he, interesting. Then he's just an asshole. Like in that <laughs> reading, it's about two people and one of them is an asshole. He's an absentee landlord. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go without a devil's advocate quote. Of course not. No, I wouldn't dare. Uh, man. We should also talk about a Jungian psychology about, like, you know, the shadow and, and things like that. I, I think it could easily be seen as, as this is a growing experience where he is, you know, stepping through his shadow and, and, and you know, really confronting all of his demons, demons and coming out the other side a changed person. Like a, a completely new and rejuvenated individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think the ending gives us that. So I I don't know what in particular Eggers was looking at from Young. Though there's obviously psychoanalytic stuff going on. Uh, I, I would like to investigate that a little bit more. I just didn't have the time. Yeah, there's a lot of the stuff in here that I, I also would like to do a little bit more deep diving into. I feel like this is one of those ones that we could probably prep for three or four weeks oh, yes. absolutely we really come down to like you know what i think about this movie you know? uh, <laughs> uh i feel like there's a lot that could be said about this flick the same with the witch the same with the shining the same with a lot of my my favorite movies ever yeah and i love how eggers is continuing through his career to explore some of the themes that he talked about in the witch whether that be man versus god man versus nature yeah. um uh children versus their parents yeah. There's so many things that you could look at. The same way that, that Jordan Peele is exploring uh, societal and racial yeah. issues in his movie, Eggers is tackling these things kind of over and over, and I, I really, really enjoy that, and I hope that that's not something that he ceases to do. I, I cannot yeah. wait to see what he does next. Cause I yeah, feel I, like, I imagine after these two movies, he can do whatever he wants, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because like, to me, even though Us was a little bit of a sophomore letdown for me from Peele, like, this to me is like, oh yeah, he's continuing his momentum yeah. that he and, had with the witch. And this movie made money. Like Oh yeah? That I mean, when you're talking about art movies um <laughs> that are really meant to win awards mostly, uh, for this movie to go to be a four million dollar budget and to make eighteen million, like it, it made enough that of course you'd let him make another one. Like it's no problem. We'll give you a few million dollars. You give us back more than that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, like, no doubt, man. It's good to see that, though, because that means he gets to keep working in that sphere. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who want him to do some book adaptation or work in some franchise or whatever, but I'd like to see him just keep doing his thing. I, yeah, I'd me too. prefer to just get his perspective. Uh, it's It's pretty amazing and interesting each time so i want to see more of that yeah you and me both man and another thing too that i'll say kind of carried over from the witch into this movie is the absolutely stunning aesthetic of the flick both movies are incredible and organic looking and natural looking and this movie 
you know, even though it's just black and white, is mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. Every yeah. moment of this movie, Gorgeous. I really feel like you could just take a screenshot and hang it yeah. on the wall. Every and moment the, of this movie looks like a fucking photograph. And the use of the format, like, to decide to go with the 1.19 to 1 ratio, like, Basically pretty much square. a square. Yeah. yeah, like, to decide to go with that, it it when you're not using it because it's all you have, you're making a very conscious choice. And what he's doing is showing us how claustrophobic it is. He's putting it in black and white, but it, it it's almost all shades of gray. Like he's using the format and the black and white aesthetic to make points about the movie. It's not just like, Oh, wouldn't this look pretty? It, it, oh yeah. It, it really shows us how claustrophobic everything is, how, um, how rigid everything is because it has to fit in that small little box. Every single thing they do has to fit into that. So yeah, it, which isn't it, that cool too, considering how how much the witch relied on gigantic exactly. wide yeah. shots to dwarf the humans. Like yeah. there's scenes where we see you know uh, the humans walking into the woods and just these towering gigantic trees that are swaying. Trees, yeah, yeah, and the humans are absolutely dwarfed by nature. In this movie, it's the complete opposite. All the shots are very tight and very close. That way you get as close to the humanity as you can. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh I mean, honestly, I, there's I don't have much more to say, though I have a million things to say. I Yeah. There's same, only man. Uh, one thing I would say that I forgot when I was talking about influences is this is uh this was Max Egger's attempt at finishing Poe's last work, The Lighthouse. Uh, really? Yeah. He he really couldn't do it, and then it eventually evolved into something different when he and Robert Egger started working together on it. So I read that last bit. I had never read it before, but I knew it wasn't much, and it really isn't. It's, uh, it's uh, about a, a lighthouse keeper who is staying alone in the lighthouse and he there's like three journal entries and basically the first one is like you know hey this is what this is the setup the second one is like it's really nice being alone and the third one's like i really like being alone and then it's over uh so there there wasn't much to work off of there and in fact some people have even argued that the story might that might be the end of the story is that like the whole story is this guy goes and when he he's writing about his experience he's talking about how much he likes being alone and then by the fourth day he kills himself but jesus <laughs> but it, it's unlikely it's likely he just he had a story in mind and didn't get to finish it but yeah that, that uh that attempt is interesting to take someone's last work and try to finish it like you know people have done it like uh uh Tolkien's son didn't he finish the Cimmerillion, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, like we've had others come along and try to, you know, finish uh, 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 an author's last work, and it it always to me like you know Steven Spielberg's AI that it was supposed to be Kubrick's movie. Like it always seems to me like I get the desire and I get the want, but like I I like the idea of taking what they were working with and making it your own thing, like what happened with this. Like sure. t- make it your own thing. Don't try to, don't think of the way they would have finished it because they aren't finishing it. 
it'll just turn out feeling like an impersonation. Exactly. You're finishing it. Yeah. That makes sense to me, man. uh, Other than that, I got nothing. I'm done. You know, the only other thing I was going to say as far as some of the influence um, aesthetically from this movie is from a lot of the early black and white photographers and stuff that were around at this time. I mean, this movie doesn't really follow the cinematic trends that we saw from this time period because they were essentially trying to film it as though you were watching a play from the crowd's perspective. It was a lot of still camera. They didn't have the technology to move a fucking camera back then and keep yeah. it in focus. You they know? were gigantic. So yeah, they were they were just in one place. Yeah. yeah it, it, and it was... It's also rare today for us to actually even be able to see what the film looked like when they first like processed it and first showed it to people. Like Maybe it was a bit more like uh, clear and vibrant. So like, yeah, he, he really couldn't work off of what 1920s aesthetic that he was kind of going for but he could work off of the photography of the 1890s in that era and yeah, which exactly. is when it's set and 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 he really sort of nails the that feeling you get from a lot of those like especially like the the silver prints like yeah, silver so gelatin prints. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really kind of captures that feel. Oh yeah, and if you want to see more of that, uh, my wife, uh, who went to school for the photography and making the pizza, she showed <laughs> me a couple of photographers that I think definitely influenced the oh, yeah? the aesthetic of this flick. Uh, number one being this guy Lewis Hine, H I N E. Okay. Uh, check out some of his stuff. You'll look at it and feel very much the same way that we did whenever you told me about that photographer that influenced it follows. Oh, and it follows, yeah. Yeah, where you look at that and it's like, are these not just shots from It Follows? <laughs> <laughs> Lewis Hines stuff looks a lot like this. And there's a couple others she pointed out, like Robert Frank and Dorothea Lang. Yeah, Lang. Lang is. Yeah, Dorothea Lang was the one I thought of. But yeah, I'm looking at Lewis Hines right now. And yes. Looks like it, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely a lot of classical photography influence and stuff that went into this too. Because the movie is just, it's just goddamn gorgeous. It is yeah. an incredible looking movie. And between that, the performances, the the deeper ways you can look at this flick uh, in terms of how it relates to myth and religion and stuff like this, I think is just incredible. I think this is an yeah. amazing movie. It's not easy to watch. It's not a fun watch. Like no, you know, it's not a it's not a comfort food movie by any means. Mm-mm. And as I said, he doesn't start drinking until forty something minutes into the movie, and that's when all the craziness happens. So yeah, that's when the, the shit 40 starts hitting the fan. Minutes leading up to that is a lot of just conversations and shots Arts. of him jerking off, and shot, like like you don't you don't get a whole lot up to that point, though it's gorgeous and it it yeah. it's necessary and builds an awesome tension, but it it isn't a it's not a fast watch and it's not an easy watch. And it's kind of hard to even pigeonhole it as just horror exactly. That is true. Yeah. Uh, you, it, you pointed out earlier, it feels more like like Victorian ghost story horror yeah, than it does like it a does. horror movie. Yeah, it's it's way closer to like a, like a Henry James turn of the screw type of thing where, you know, you're uh you're really being led on in these dark moments and you're you're being like you're being primed to be ready for something to happen, but it doesn't necessarily have to happen ever. 
Like that, right, it's the growing that, sense of yeah. dread more than anything that yeah. keeps you on on edge. Yeah, but in this case, something does happen. Uh, yeah, a lot of something. <laughs> <laughs> but it does. But it yeah. does seem to share more with that. Like honestly, uh, uh, another Melville book that I've recommended before, Pierre. Like it reminds me a lot of it, which is a, a sort of his his uh, almost satirical take on a gothic romance. So it 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 has that romance quality and sort of that like uh, late Victorian era ghost story quality it it is a horror movie but in a more classical sense of horror than than what we would commonly recognize as horror today yeah I think so too man I think it's an incredible movie I will watch this many 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 times and probably find new things in it every time yeah. and talk about them on later episodes <laughs> of uh-huh. the show. Yeah, this movie, like I said, between the look, the performances, the way that it so encapsulates the cabin fever that happens when you are stuck in one location with one other person that you maybe don't even necessarily uh, like the company of, especially in these conditions, man. And the fact is they filmed these scenes and stuff in actual weather conditions most of the time that these actors were in sheer misery yeah they weren't making this movie no it couldn't have been easy and robert pattinson uh further wasn't happy because uh because of the way they had to shoot they had to rehearse and that's not his acting style willem dafoe comes from theater so he's really used to rehearsing but for robert pattinson it was like you know uh, very difficult to get into that new mindset. So yeah. uh, Robert Eggers said in an interview I read that he, he wasn't trying. He wasn't trying to do anything Kubrickian, but that it did serve to make the character more believable because he is wow. actually miserable. <laughs> well, I mean that's the same shit we talked about on on Misery, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yes. Same exact issue. Yeah, where two people have different acting style. And it makes the one who's supposed to be miserable, miserable. Yeah, dude. So I absolutely appreciate the amount of commitment that the actors put into it, the amount of research and accuracy that Eggers put yeah. into writing this thing. Well, both Eggers, that is. Yeah. And again, that, that feeling that you get in this where you're just slowly being driven insane by the person that you're stuck with, Ugh. every little mannerism that they have just so reminds me of being on tour Dude, yep. that scene like towards the end of the movie I where bet. Pattinson is like just going completely overboard and just uh-huh. pissed off as fuck about Defoe's farts. Uh huh. He's like, "You're fucking farts!" Like he's uh-huh. just oh, coming man. unglued. Like about hot this onions, shit. fuck the farmyard shit house. <laughs> <laughs> great dialogue. Great fucking yeah. dialogue. Great. That is exactly what it's like when you're on tour and you're in a van with somebody. You know, twelve hours a day, and then you play a half hour set and then you're back in a van for 12 hours like that's the kind of shit that actually drives you insane in cabin fever is those little tiny things that the other people do that just drive you nuts over a long enough time span they're not even a big deal but again if that's all that you're stuck with it'll drive you insane this movie nails it yeah, you you need that space. You need to be able to just separate because yeah, every little thing, even the things that you like about a person, can turn. <laughs> like oh, now God, you hate so it so fast. Yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, this movie to me is incredible. Like I said, I'll watch it many more times. Not a fun watch, but for me, I think I'm gonna say that this is a 
It's like a nine and a half out of ten for me. I think yeah. it's fucking incredible. That's uh, exactly where I was gonna rate it. Uh, I think I think I probably gave the, the Witch a ten. Not positive on I think that. I did too. And I, 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 do I like still the Witch think better. I still think the Witch is better. I think it's uh, more comprehensible. It's more enjoyable as a watch. Yeah, I think so. But but uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not far off. He he's really nailing it. So what got, what what it. If you don't suffer from a sophomore slump in any recognizable quality, like like if your first is a ten and your second is a nine and a half, like where do you go from there? I I'm just excited to see what he does next. Yeah, this is totally a Van Halen two or a Pinkerton yeah. affair for me. <laughs> <laughs> Follows finally up got that part Pinkerton one great. In there. <laughs> yeah, finally right. <laughs> Well, next week on the show, we're going to be talking about another one from last year. Again, why not use this time where we're stuck inside watching flicks yeah. and stuff to catch Watch up on movies. all the cool stuff that we missed on last year. And we're going to talk about one that's definitely a little bit more, uh, I anticipate, lighthearted and simple and face value than a movie like like this was. Yeah. We're going to be talking about Crawl next yeah. week. Yeah. Kind of a creature <laughs> feature, man. I'm excited yeah. about this one. Yeah, and it... it, it, it it just seemed like the perfect palate cleanser after the lighthouse. Cause I've heard that it's just dumb fun. Uh, I am interested. Get to see some gators. Dude. I'm, I'm telling you though, we're going to get on the show next week and you're going to be like, man, I've just been researching crocodile <laughs> psychology papers all week and shit. You're going to find more to it than you think. I bet. That's I anticipate true. this. That's what's going to happen. Actually, yeah. next next week's a four-hour episode where I dissect crawl. Yeah, yeah. the symbol of the crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be a lot of fun. I'll look forward to, to checking this out. I've actually never even seen a trailer for this, but I've just I heard haven't it. either. It's simple, I've just heard fun. About it. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I have no idea other than I know that there's a hurricane and gators involved. So Yeah, dude. And if anybody listens to the show, they know my taste range from the stuff like The Lighthouse that uh-huh. can be these super deep dive, really, really big, hard to understand movies. Or I like stuff that's just fucking dumb and people getting murdered for no reason. So I might really like this movie. Yeah, this might be uh, the Wraith situation where you love it totally. and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, what bliss, right? Yeah, for real. <laughs> well, in the meantime, you guys can go online, go on iTunes or whatever, rate and review this podcast. It really, really does help us out a ton. So if you've got a second and you can go on iTunes and uh, make a review and rate the show, Helps and, us out a ton. Also, at the end of your review, be sure to leave a question that we will answer on a future FAQ section of the Preview Palace. Ask us a question about anything, and we shall answer it. Yeah, get us some. Hey, maybe we do that next week with Crawl. Who knows? Could be that, yeah. man. Could be that. They can follow us on social media they also. They can! At Dead Lovely Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash dead and lovely, youtube.com forward slash dead and lovely. We're working on a video idea. We're going to probably try to get some more youtube videos out yeah because uh, we got time yeah uh also uh head on over to patreon.com forward slash dead and lovely become a patron we yeah show some use support. your money to do things like pay for hosting and uh all sorts of other things we we're gonna have more uh merch coming out because we hit our first goal on patreon Woo! but uh i don't want to be mailing people merch right now because you know my what? wife works yeah, on true. the covid floor at the hospital 
So you know, I'm a yeah. little worried about that pushing out. So we'll we'll wait on what we were gonna do was beer koozie. So let's just wait. <laughs> we'll a wait a let's wait till this that. all blows yeah. over. We'll head down to the pub and have a pint. But head on over there to Patreon.com. Uh, if you become a five dollar patron, you get to throw uh, a submission into the. I don't know what we use anymore. Last time I used a Dia de los Muertos bowl. Uh, <laughs> and cool. then we will randomly select a movie title and then cover that movie. And in fact, whatever we do after Crawl will be a Patreon movie. So get in there. Get your pick in now. Get your pick in now. That's right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I hope that everybody is staying happy and healthy and sane in these trying times and watching some good movies. Be sure to go over there on the Facebook group. Tell us what you guys thought about The Lighthouse. And tell us about whatever else you guys have been catching while you've been streaming some stuff. Because we're always looking for recommendations and things to check out and pass oh, yeah. the time. Gotten a lot of good recommendations lately. Hell yeah, we have. Yeah. That's absolutely right, man. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, stay healthy, wash your damn hands, and your and ass. Your ass. <laughs> uh, thanks for checking out this show. You guys have been fantastic. We've been dead and lovely. And we'll be catching you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Now, I know I've mentioned on the show before that Edison's original design for the telephone was that you would answer it by saying the nautical term, ahoy. Yeah, ahoy, ahoy. And this movie just definitely made me think about that even more and think about just how wonderful it would make even ordinary everyday phone calls. Like, could you imagine, like, you're hungry and you make a phone call and it's, ahoy, this is Domino's. <laughs> yes, Isn't I can that imagine so that. so much better? And life would be, uh, it would be... Just a minuscule tidge better, but it definitely would improve life. Ahoy, this is 911. What's your emergency? <laughs> like, I would just laugh and then tell them, oh, I'm having a heart attack. It's obviously <laughs> so you, better. Yeah, so you're already a little bit more relaxed. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking actually now, like, the tiny percentage that it would improve life is probably enough to have at least saved one person's life, so we should probably do it. Laughter is the best medicine. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many things in public schools that I never understood, but the transition from blackboard to whiteboard still doesn't make sense to me. Because, <laughs> like, chalk is so cheap, and then the markers for the whiteboard aren't, and then they don't provide them to teachers. What the yeah. fuck? You think you should start a, a, a school supply podcast called Chalk is cheap? Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. And I'm gonna right now. Good idea. Let me go look that up. Chalk is cheap. Chalk is cheap. I like it. I think it's very catchy.